This is Chris. Welcome to episode 31 of X Lapsed, and uh, I come to you today hot and bothered, but uh, literally hot and bothered. Uh, as uh, many of you know, I live in sunny Arizona, and uh, despite the fact that we are currently in October, it's still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit out here, and uh, i tell you what, I'm done with it. <laughs> I'm really, really, really tired of the heat, so... Uh, Let's let's talk about X Men. <laughs> let's talk about the X Men here, because uh, I'm staring at my window right now, and uh, all I see is hot. So let's just get into the book here. We are entering into the uh, Dawn of X number fours, so we are going to start with Marauders number four. This one out of February 2020 cover date. The story is called The Red Bishop, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Lucas Wernick. Colors, Federico Blee. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Robinson White-Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now we open with our, our usual three pages of non-comics. We got our roll call, so let's go through it. We've got Kate Pride, and I'm only calling her Kate because they... They make sure to call her that here. Uh, Bishop, Pyro, Storm, and Iceman. Then we get our credits. Then we get an info page. So uh, I guess we got four non-comic pages to start. It really makes me wonder, just like, what in the hell would a new reader do here? You know, you buy a comic book. You spend $4 on a comic book. You're, you're a new reader. You're ex-curious, right? And you're coming in. And it takes you up to page five to get the comics. Uh, I guess, on the bright side, it's probably a good thing that there aren't too many new readers out there. Maybe thanks to stuff like this. I don't know. So, the info page we get makes mention of Jumbo Carnation being back among the living, which pays off on an earlier sinister secret. I believe it was uh, one of the first ten that we got during during Hoxpox itself. Then, imagine this, we actually get comics. So let's talk about comics. Now, we're somewhere in Brazil, where a quartet of young mutants are watching as three ships approach the shore. From the one in the middle, they can hear someone cranking out the other Journey song people know, so not, not Don't Stop Believing, the other one. Uh, it's Pyro in, in the uh, Steve Perry role, and he and Lockheed are even doing a full-on fire and light show to accompany his vocals. The kids, realizing they are now being saved by the marauders, they rush toward the beach. They are, unfortunately, stopped by a dude in a fatigue jumper and shades. This is a paragon of the uh, Brazilian army or Brazilian rent mark legion, I don't know. He warns them not to step off the beach, as that would be treasonous. And the pen penalty for treason is, of course, death. Storm, however, begs to differ. She claims that these children are citizens of Krakoa by birthright and says, if they so choose, they will return home with her. Our man Paragon thinks Storm's interjection is rather adorable and more or less begs her to fight him. And so she strikes him with lightning. Twice. Which, uh, 
Eh, seems kind of unstorm-like to me. <laughs> maybe she's been uh, maybe she's been drinking the kitty juice. You know, having that listed as a bullet point, I didn't expect it to sound quite so vulgar. I apologize. Um, I apologize. Uh, let's move on. Uh, now, they leave the Merc in a... You know, he's smoking in a ditch. <laughs> but uh, we do hear him gurgle the word, Ugh! Which lets us know that Storm didn't break that first demandment of Krakoa. They didn't kill him. Uh, the Marauders welcome the Tots to the ship, and it looks as though the uh, standout, if we can even call him that, of this group is a green kid called Fish. Uh, Pyro offers them liquor, and Iceman downloads Krakoan into their noggins, as they, uh, and away they go. We shift scenes back to Taipei, where Kitty and Bishop are scoping out a building. We get a reminder here that Kitty's unable to step through the Krakoan gateways with the added information that she's never learned the Krakoan language. You see, Bishop gives her, like, a schematic of the place they're trying to break into, and it's written in Krakoan. Kitty doesn't know what the hell it says. There you go. Now, she and Bishop parachute down from a skyscraper, and as they fall, Kitty tries to sell our man on becoming her red bishop. He's still not fond of the idea. Our pair phase through the roof of a nearby building and arrive at the penthouse home of Lim and Chen Zhao. Now, Chen Zhao, if you recall, and you might not, because this was a few issues ago, this was the woman in the first issue who was holding rallies and claiming that her husband vanished after touching a Krakoan gateway. I assumed that this meant that this fellow might have been a mutant, and we're about to find out that I was completely wrong. Kitty and Bishop have a poke around the lavish penthouse home, with the former dis- depositing a piece of genuine ivory into the wall. You see, the Zows are a-holes, so we gotta hammer that point home as unsubtly as possible. Uh, Bishop's intel revealed that there's a panic room here, and so our pair phase through the wall to find it. And there, they find Lim Zhao. This dude is incredibly happy to see Shadowcat and Bishop, and, uh... I can't remember the last time we saw the name Shadowcat in print, though, to be honest, I don't always pay the best attention, so it could have been the last issue for all I know. It feels like it's been a while, though. Now, this fella, your limb, he wants our heroes to take him back to Krakoa with them. Kitty doesn't quite understand what's going on. Bishop reveals that this goober is part of something called the Order of X, and that's a mutant-worshipping cult. I believe we saw the Shaws deal with a gaggle of them in Central Park last issue. Now, they're not so sure what to do with this fellow. Like, they really can't just leave him here, but at the same time, they can't really bring him back to Krakoa with them. This discussion is cut short, however, by the arrival of a couple of Lady Deathstrikes, who uh, Kitty and Bishop proceed to fight for a handful of mostly grunt-filled pages. It does look like poor Kitty gets her nose broken again here, though. Now, she ups the ante on the, her brutality here, swatting at one of the ladies' death strike with a pillow, phasing it upon impact, and then unfazing it while it's lodged in the baddie's body. Bishop then blasts the hell out of the other one, and our heroes are good to go. They grab Lim and head out, of Chen's current an- head out to Chen's current anti-mutant rally, and uh, she's being pretty much exactly what you'd expect her to be. They're not being very subtle with her hatred. She's a bit gobsmacked, however, when Kitty, Bishop, and Lim interrupt the proceedings. Kitty gets on stage, reveals the scam, and deposits poor delusional Lim back into the care of his loving wife. Now, Lim is kind of a looney tune here. He's just, like, waving to the crowd while the, they pelt the pair with raucous booze. Uh, it's actually almost endearing how out to lunch this guy is. It's, it's pretty funny. 
Now, as Kitty and Bishop phase off panel, the former hard sells the latter on becoming the Red Bishop again. He still ain't feeling it, but it would seem as though he's starting to come around. He asks about having to wear red, to which Kitty informs him that old Jumbo Carnation is already working on their gear. So I guess this means that Kitty won't be wearing that, that really awful Captain Morgan outfit we saw her in a couple issues ago. Hopefully. Uh, from here, info page. It's some emails exchanged between Bishop and Beast, and uh, to be completely honest, it might just be the most likable Beast has been portrayed in a decade. Now, Bishop informs Hank about the lady's death strike and refers to them as post-humans. So, if I'm remembering right, they're the second and third post-humans we've seen in Dawn of X to this point. Uh, we had uh, that one from The Vault back in X-Men number one. Uh, and I don't think we've seen any since, unless I'm mistaken. I very well might be. Uh, Bishop also complains to Hank that, uh, you know, Kitty's start, still trying to coerce him into becoming the Red Bishop. Beast tells him, hey, you know what? You ought to consider it, because it could prove useful down the line. You know, the Hellfire Club, Corporation, whatever. They're not known for their transparency, so maybe having a fella on the inside would be the best way to go. From here, we jump back to comics, and we wrap up the issue. We rejoin Chen, who has just arrived in Madripoor, for an important meeting. You see, she was humiliated and ruined by the mutants, and now she wants revenge. And so, she's decided to throw in with Cade Kilgore in the Junior Hellfire Club. Wow, I haven't seen or even thought about these characters in like, god, near a decade. So, <laughs> that's interesting, and that's uh, that's where we, uh, where we wrap up. Uh, we wrap up on a pretty uh, pretty interesting and pretty neat uh, note there with uh, the Junior Hellfire kids there. I, I, I like that. Uh, next up, we'll be talking about Excalibur number four, but uh, let's talk about what we just read. Now, I like this issue a lot. I thought this was a really, really fun story. Um, I mean, let's, let's talk about Kitty and Bishop. I thought this was a really fun team-up. Uh, these are a couple of characters that I feel like I haven't seen together, working together, like, ever, you know? And uh, I think it worked really well. I, I like Bishop playing kind of the straight man, and Kitty, you know, kind of being a bit petulant and uh, beggy, trying to get him to uh, sign on the dotted line to be her red bishop. Um, then the dialogue here... I mean, they felt like natural pals, and the dialogue was very organic, which is a nice change of pace from some of the discourse in the other X-Books, which I've commented has felt rather forced and rather, rather you know, contrived. Um, a lot of just means-to-an-end sort of stuff, right? Where this felt, this felt legit, and I liked it. Um, I liked... Another thing I liked was that Kitty was not portrayed as being sloppy drunk during this issue. And uh, that's not to say I have a problem with people drinking or anything. I'm not a drinker personally, outside of the the one girl drink I allow myself every year on the wedding anniversary. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the wife and I, in normal, that is to say non-2020 years, we celebrate our anniversary every year at uh, a place called the Salish Lodge in uh, Snoqualmie, Washington. Which, for folks familiar with Twin Peaks, you might know better as the Great Northern. It's the uh, the hotel from the uh, opening credits of Twin Peaks. We're pretty big fans, and uh, and the lodge and the waterfall and the, and the town are, are beautiful. So it's a, it's a win win win. Um, I'll get my uh, my one alcoholic beverage of the year there, which is something called the Dale Cooper. It uh, 
it's kind of citrusy. It's 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 a girl drink. Uh, and again, if you're familiar with Twin Peaks, that name will probably ring a bell. Uh, usually, I'll take a sip, then I'll turn into everyone's Irish uncle. You know, bright red nose, bright red cheeks, and and all smiles. Just doesn't take me much. My tolerance is is very 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 low. Anywho, that said. I don't have a problem with people drinking, uh, but the way Kitty is portrayed, it—I don't know—it makes me think of like that one friend in our in everybody's circle who massages every conversation to include a mention about how they like to smoke pot. I, th- I think we all have that one one friend, you know, and uh, it just or it like they insist upon their uh, their addiction or whatever it is that they do and it's like okay we get the point we get the point stop hitting us over the head with it we get it you like to do that cool whatever <laughs> it just makes me it reminds me of a lot of how kitty's been written for the first two issues of this series so seeing her here in issue four being more heroic and less wildly annoying was a very nice thing to see um, I really enjoyed her trying to kind of needle Bishop into the position of uh, the Red Bishop for the Help Fire Corporation. Just really good stuff all around. I, I can't say a bad thing about it. I enjoyed it. Uh, the Taipei mission was well done. I liked Lim being part of the X-Cult, as well as his wife's comeuppance. Um, it was also cool seeing a couple of post-humans. I, I'd almost forgotten about them, so it was neat to get a reminder that these sort of characters, uh, you know, if Hoxpox is to come to pass the, you know, the far-flung futures, they're eventually going to loom large, right? Uh, having a pair of ladies' death strike was an interesting choice. Um, you know, not exactly an A-lister, but one that's recognizable on site. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, reintroducing the Junior Hellfire kids, I, I like that too. That was a neat choice. Um, as I mentioned, I probably haven't thought about them in... Probably since 2011, 2012 maybe Because if I'm remembering right I think they hit around the time of Schism And I think they may have had an arc or two In the Wolverine and the X-Men series That spun out of a Schism I do remember them being fun foils uh, For, you know, Wolverine And I think Quentin Quire was part of those stories And, and hopefully they will be again You know, hopefully they will be again Here in uh, Marauders moving forward Um I think the only thing, if we can even call it a complaint, uh, the only thing that I really didn't dig about this issue was the way Storm was portrayed. I don't remember her being quite so liberal with her use of power. Um, I mean, this wasn't like she was facing down an army. This was just one idiot, and she hit him with lightning twice. (laughs) It just feels like a literally overkill, right? I mean, um. They, they had to make sure they put a panel in there of the dude gargling to make sure we knew he didn't die, but, I mean, this dude got pelted pretty hard, and uh, Storm did it really without any thought. It wasn't like a last resort sort of thing. It's just like, okay, well, you know, you step to me, and I'm going to hit you with lightning. So, I don't know. Not my favorite take on Storm, though. I will say that Storm's been portrayal here has been better than I've seen her in many, many years, so... I guess you take the good, you take the bad. Or you take the stuff you dig, and you take the stuff you don't dig quite as much. Uh, overall, though, I had a pretty good time with this. Um, you know, beyond happy that I'm completely back on board with this title, uh, because after issue two, which I came down kind of middling on, I was a little bit worried. I thought I was going to fall on the minority side of just being someone who tolerated this book. But... Uh, but no, this was a lot of fun. I'm happy to be back. Um, I'm happy that I'm enjoying this, and I'm happy that I'm looking forward to the next issue. So that's a uh, 
that's what we in the biz call, uh, you know, a win. <laughs> I'm a little bit less happy that next episode we'll be looking at Excalibur, but... And all I've seen so far is the cover, which has Betsy fighting what looks to be the Shogo Dragon. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not usually one that hopes that the cover doesn't depict what happens in the issue, but I'm kind of hoping that the cover doesn't depict what happens in the issue. We'll be optimistic. We will. Uh, we will be optimistic as always. We will try to uh, try to keep it on the bright side. But uh, that's about all I have to say about this issue. But uh, before I let you go, let's uh, let's touch in with some uh, the feedback from the mailbag here. I'll start with Damien. This is regarding New Mutants number three. And New Mutants number three was tonally very, very different from New Mutants number one and two. A totally different story, totally different characters, just a totally different thing. So Damien says, I will never understand why the two storylines of New Mutants were not released as two separate series. They really are unrelated. In itself, it's not the worst X story, but I wanted to see more of the team from the first two issues. Yeah, such a bizarre shift here. Um, it makes very little sense why they would cut into the Shi'ar story with this two-parter. Um, the only thing I could maybe guess is that maybe Hickman needed more time. I, I, I don't know the man, <laughs> and I am, I am very, uh, I'm like tangentially into the you know the comics news world here, so I don't know a whole heck of a lot that's going on outside of the you know the handful of books that I'm reading. So. I don't know what what all he's writing outside of his ex-commitments, but uh, I'm guessing he's probably a pretty busy dude. Um, maybe this new this new Mutants arc had a one-month or two-issue buffer built in to buy him some time, and of course that is assuming that this side story all wraps up next issue. I, I guess they decided they'll just pass the savings on to us poor defenseless readers. Um, and you're right, it's not the worst story. It just felt... A bit too much like a fill-in for my tastes It's almost as though they had writers put together some very basic post-Hoxpox style stories And then just stuffed them in a drawer until they were needed You know, it's like, okay, this is the new status quo Write us some stories and we'll use them if we have to And uh, this is one of them (laughs) That's how it feels I am completely talking out of my ass here Uh, This could be the plan all along Maybe the two stories are going to converge in some way couldn't tell you. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, this was a weird one. Very, very weird. Back to Damien, he says, Interesting to hear your reaction to the villains. They really do come across as generic anti-mutants. As I recall, the next issue tries to make them more important and kind of explains why they have power-dampening weapons, but I remember remaining underwhelmed. And, uh, underwhelming is probably the most apt descriptor here. Um, because, like we said, it's not a bad story. It's just an unspectacular story. Uh, it would probably take something very spectacular to happen to change my mind on the arc and make it make it feel like it was something worthwhile. But uh, we'll see. Uh, Damien continues. In relation to your reaction to my DC origin story, you're wrong. Millennium was the perfect jumping on point. You stated that nothing really happens in the story, and this allows them the time to show off who and what makes up the DC universe at the time. There was also a fantastic article by assistant editor Mark Wade in issue 2 in which he talks about the history of DC crossovers. This was perfect for a newcomer as I was instantly brought up to date in an era where internet research would have been impossible. And as much as I hate Millennium, and I do hate Millennium, I have this weird begrudging respect for what it set out to do as it pertains to including as much of the then DC universe into its web as possible. 
I mean, even characters who didn't have their own titles at the time were kind of tied into the ascension of the New Guardians uh, in, in issue 8 of Millennium. And uh, and I've covered that Wade bit myself, both uh, in pod and blog form, and uh, that might just be the highlight of the entire run uh, to me. Uh, Damien continues, Of course, when I met Steve Englehart at a comic convention and asked him to sign my first DC comic, he apologized for it being, for it being impenetrable. So the writer of the comic is on your side. And, uh, hey, it's not often I think I'd find myself agreeing with Mr. Englehart, but there you go. Um, <laughs> speaking of impenetrable, um, I'm not really one to talk. Uh, I've mentioned here and again that uh, about my DC Comics origin story, you know. I started reading DC Comics with The Death of Superman in 1992-1993, and then I left. I left after that story. I left actually before The Reign of the Superman wrapped up because I found myself not caring. Um, I'd pop in every now and again, you know, Electric Blue was something I wanted to see, some Nightfall stuff I wanted to see, uh, Emerald Twilight I wanted to see. So I popped in every now and again, but actually came back to DC in earnest around the time of Batman No Man's Land. You know, that's where I was like, okay, I'm going to take a look on the other side of the table. I had way too much money burning a hole in my pocket. And uh, a lot of the DC stuff just looked cool. So it's like, okay, I'm going to finally do this. I'm going to finally start adding these these books to my, uh, to my pull list, you know. So for the first time ever, I was a, an, you know, an ingrained DC Comics reader. And... Uh, and what was the first DC trade paperback I bought? Crisis. <laughs> I knew nothing about DC Comics. But I bought and I read Crisis on Infinite Earths. I think it was like a $40 trade, which was a lot of money then, a lot of money now. Um, and despite not knowing about three quarters of the characters or really anything about pre-Crisis DC Comics history, I didn't know jack about the Silver Age, Bronze Age, didn't know anything. But I bought it, and I read it, and and I tried my best. Uh, I've read it several times since, and Reggie and I actually have, you know, 13 or 14 hours of crisis coverage on the channel here. But uh, that was, uh, you know, I can't really speak when it comes to impenetrable stories. Um, uh, Damien wraps up with, I covered Millennium in my first episode of my podcast, Should I Love This Comic? It's a little difficult to listen to as it was my first attempt, but I would recommend your listeners at least look up the gallery page at my website, shouldilovethis.blogspot.com, where I shared that article. And uh, yeah, Millennium, as, as much as I disliked it, um, is one of... Because uh, I've covered it uh, many different ways myself, too. And... Uh, it's one of the living and breathing sections of the blog, um, which is to say the posts are like never done because I'm constantly, or not constantly, but I'm regularly finding new things to add, new commentary, new ephemera, um, new, you know, promotional material, and I will update my Millennium posts to include them. I don't know why Millennium is like the one DC crossover that I picked to do this with. Because, I, like I said, I hate it. <laughs> I think it's really bad. But uh, I, for some reason, it's just... I, I've kind of pigeonholed myself to do as much Millennium-based uh, <laughs> research as possible. I can't explain it. Uh, the post for Millennium number 8 at Chris's on Infinite Earth is chock full of extras, if anybody wants to check that out. Um, and I'll also add the link to Damien's coverage in the show notes uh, for folks to check out... Uh, 
his gallery as well and his program. But thank you so much for reaching out there. I always look forward to your messages. And uh, I was especially looking forward to seeing your reaction to my reaction to the wildly strange New Mutants number three. So that was very cool. Thank you so much. Uh, Now, our other piece of feedback this time out will be from our friend Al Sedano. Uh, regarding Powers of X number three, so he's uh, he's still very early in the run here. And uh, one thing about Al, uh, he and I have a uh, have a project that we've got in the works that uh, we think some folks out there might find legion. I mean, I mean legendary. Um, we'll, we'll we'll put a pin in that, but it will be a part of the the late new fall season here at the Chris and Reggie Channel. So I hope hope folks. Uh, might smell what I'm cooking here, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, Al's message here starts with, Sorry, been a busy been busy the last few days, but here are my thoughts after listening to Episode 5 and reading Powers of X number 3. First of all, I love nihilistic suicide run Zorn. This is not the kind of nihilism I'm used to seeing. Normally, it's Thanos, and while I do love that character, he's not great at providing the giggles. Zorn, however, is like, what if Iceman was a nihilist? And yeah, this take on Zorn was super cool. Um... I really wasn't expecting to be quite as taken with these X-Men of the Year 100, but they were just a ton of fun. Um, And as I mentioned during the coverage here, I actually felt a loss when they went away, which really speaks to the talents of uh, of Jonathan Hickman here to take these uh, these chimeras, you know, these ciphers, you know, and just make them uh, just just so damn endearing and uh, so much fun to read. Al continues, Also, I didn't realize that wasn't Magneto. I was wondering why the change to the green outfit, but now that makes sense. And yeah, totally. I wasn't sure either until it was made clear that he was a chimera. Um, I thought that was a pretty neat reveal. Uh, The whole chimera concept is pretty neat. And I wonder... I mean, we have a post-human here today, and uh, I think that they're going to... I think they're going to be playing kind of in concert. Um... That might have been made perfectly clear, and I'm just too dense to realize it. But I, I think that it's, uh, I think that it'll, it'll all come together, and I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. Uh, back to Ali says, so Krakoa is a merger of Krakoa and Cipher. Interesting that one of the, the the one considered the weakest apparently lasts longer than the rest of the New Mutants, as well as most of the X Men. And yeah, for sure, um, I, I I still liked calling him Swamp Thing for the few times we saw him, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cypher did outlast his uh, his cohort, right? And I feel like Cypher has kind of taken that... Uh, I don't know if this will make sense uh, to anyone but me, but I feel like he's taken that Aquaman role, you know? Like the character that everyone assumes is a joke. You know, you get the, like, the durr, he talks to fish sort of thing, but then the writers kind of bend over backwards to legitimize him. Uh, maybe I'm thinking too hard about it, I, or maybe I've just heard too many... You know, John Byrne civilians talk about Aquaman, and I get the durher he talks to fish a lot. Uh, maybe I'm just annoyed that every Aquaman story anymore seems to be preceded by some commentary about how he's not a joke anymore. And yet, every single writer who handles the character will cram at least one one durher he talks to fish remarks into their work. I don't know. But I, I feel like Cypher, you know, is a silly character to have on your front lines, and uh, writers ever since he's returned from the dead, have been really, really bending over backwards to make him feel more legit. I think Hickman's got him in a really good spot um, in, you know, in being the uh, the translator or the liaison between the X-Men and Krakoa. I think that's a really good role for him and plays to his strengths while, you know, hiding all of his weaknesses. 
Uh, back to Al, he says, This issue, considering how many of them die, is, was quite amusing. Besides Zorn, we also get more from the new, new snarky and sarcastic Nimrod. It's ironic that at this point in the future, the machine is more human than most humans seem to be. And yeah, I totally love this take on Nimrod, and you're spot on here. Um, somehow his behavior feels the most human out of anyone in this point in time, but it's just so damn creepy, isn't it? I, I think that this is... This is like the scariest I've seen a character in a very long time, and all he's doing is acting normal. <laughs> you know, you have this big, you know, pink marshmallow peep who's being all sassy and sarcastic. A really, really fun take on Nimrod. I, I liked it a lot. Um, back to Ali. He says, one mistake, you, one mistake it looks like you made. Uh, when reading the timeline for Mora the Ninth, you missed some of the events listed on the bottom of that timeline. Year 49 was when mutants overrun Asia established the capital cities of Akaba, Kir, and Tian. Since it seemed like you were confused as to what they were when it says they were destroyed in year 56. So, yeah, mea culpa. You're totally right. I actually uh, flipped through the issue hoping that I'd get a get-out-of-jail-free card here. And maybe maybe they only included that little tidbit in the collected edition, but not the original issue. But no, no, they didn't. I just missed it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. It, uh... It happens from time to time, doesn't it? Um, now, Al wraps up his email here. That's all this time, except to add that I enjoyed Jeremiah as a guest and hope he comes back at some point. And uh, thank you. I hope so, too. I actually just uh, chatted him up today, and he uh, he decided he's going to order the uh, Dawn of X anthology. So uh, you never know. We might see him here again pretty soon uh, as he gets those and starts reading through them. And also, you know, while on that subject, it's been a few weeks since I've extended any invitations, so that goes for anybody. If, uh, if anybody would like to come on and chat with me about a Dawn of X issue, as well as maybe your life and times as an X fan, please reach out. Um, uh, you know, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or Ace Comics on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to hear from folks. I'd love to have uh, more people on to, uh, to talk about this, you know, very interesting time in X history, as well as learn a little bit more about your times in x history you know that's part of the stuff that i love the best about this is sharing stories about how we discovered certain properties uh, why we stayed why we stuck with some why we left sometimes why we came back i just uh i don't know how interesting a lot of people find that but i find it very very interesting so like i said if anybody wants to come on and chat definitely reach out reach out please um and, you know, if you want to just reach out and, uh, you know, send me a letter or talk about how much you love and or hate the program, please do so. That's at, uh, again, at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Uh, you could find the show notes and all the stuff, including a whole lot of words about Millennium, over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You could find the X-Lapsed subdomain at xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. You can find us on Tumblr at X-Lapsed. I don't know exactly how to find it on Tumblr. I will include the link in the show notes because I, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Um, you can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com where you'll be able to find thousands of hours worth of audio entertainment or audio, uh, I don't know, just audio, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to overstep and call it entertainment. It is, but it is audio. That is a fact. Um, but I think that's where we'll leave it today. One more huge thank you to everyone for uh, for hanging out and sharing your time with me as we enter the issue fours. We're uh, we're making a dent here. We're by the end of the fours, we'll be what about a third of the way through these runs. So that's pretty exciting. I'm 
I didn't know that this series would uh, would quite have quite the lasting power that it has. So, and uh, I owe all of that to uh, to you all. So thank you so so much. Um, but I think that's where we'll put a pin in it. So until next time, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 32 of X-Lapsed, where we are covering one of the Betsy books here. This is Excalibur number four, and it had a February 2020 cover date. We'll, uh, we'll hop right in. I don't have anything to complain about today. The weather is, uh, well, it's still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's not, I don't know. I haven't been outside as much, so it's not bothering me quite as much as it was uh, the other day. Uh, this one is called Verse 4, Fall Back and Think of England. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Marcus Toe. Colors by Eric Arshaniga. Letters, VC's Corey Petit. Uh, Corey Petit's been pretty busy over the past few uh, <laughs> few episodes. Uh, designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Beast So White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now, before we hop into the book, let's, uh, let's look at the cover. Uh, I mentioned this last episode. When I first took, you know... Actually took stock of the cover and didn't just, you know, file it. Um, I assumed that this featured Betsy fighting that baby Shogo dragon that we ran into uh, last issue. Thankfully, that doesn't quite turn out to be what happens here. But unfortunately, it kind of feels like they might have used the cover for the wrong issue. But uh, we'll get there. Um, and I mean, that's not even like... That really even matters anymore, right? What, what good are covers in current year anyway, huh? As long as it's a... Uh, it alludes to something, I guess, right? Anyway, we open it up. And we see Gambit having a one-sided chat with the comatose rogue atop that Krakoan lighthouse. He tells her that he's got just got some business left to do with Betsy. Back, uh, he's got to attend to it in London, and then he's done. Then he's going to devote all of his time to shaking Rogue out of this spell. We follow Gambit all the way to the gates of Buckingham Palace, where there are some raucous anti-mutant ralliers there, uh, rallying, as they do. 
Now, this is the first scene of the issue where I feel like maybe the art isn't quite up to the standards we expect from uh, from this create this art team, right? Uh, we have a bystander hurling a bottle at Gambit, and Gambit, as quick as a cat, he catches it, charges it, and throws it back. But this whole action looks very, very wooden. Uh, zero feeling of movement. Uh, everything felt very, very static. Um, lifeless. Uh, no emotion. It was just kind of just there. Uh, just didn't really work for me. Now, while on that subject, I know anti-mutant rallies are something to expect when reading an X-Men book, and it makes complete in-story sense for us to be seeing them, but I'm kind of having that, you know, hail-on-a-tin-roof sort of reaction to them here. Uh, I feel like there's just too much of it. Um, I get that they're there. I get, you know, that it makes total sense. It's just kind of tiresome. Uh, one good thing about this page that I will give it is that uh, when Gambit sees the crowd, he greets them with a "Hey," which, you know, made me peek around the panel for Apocalypse, uh, which makes absolutely no sense to anyone except for listeners of this show. Okay, anyway, how about we get the three pages without comics on them? Let's do it. First, we got our roll call. Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Betsy Britton. Pete Wisdom, Apocalypse, Megan, Jamie Braddock, and Mariana Stern. Then we got two pages of credits. Then we got comics again. We hop inside the palace where we see Jubilee having a chat with Richter. They talk about something here that's always kind of boggled my mind. And uh, really the reason why I tend not to be specific when discussing anything having to do with England, Great Britain, or the United Kingdom. Because... To be completely honest, I'm not a very worldly guy, and I don't know when or how to apply any of those words. <laughs> it's uh, always eluded me. I just never figured out what goes where and how. Um, Jubilee and Julio, how, unfortunately, they really don't help my worldly education any here. It's, uh, it's just as uh, confusing <laughs> after their chat. Um, now, Richter, he says... It looks like he's already been fixed, right? Uh, last issue, he couldn't leave his apartment for fear of, you know, shaking the world around him. Uh, he really can't explain uh, why or how this is. All he says is that uh, he listened to him, and I guess that was enough. He suggests, even though he doesn't really like the big blue guy, that maybe Gambit ought to consider bending his ear as well. And uh, this bit of the conversation gets interrupted by an explosion outside, and I'm going to put money on it being Gambit's charged bottle, because of course it is. Now this results in Gambit, Jubilee, and Richter fighting off the anti-mutant protesters, which, I don't know, I mean, I know we've got Krakoan diplomatic immunity or whatever it is, but wouldn't an explosion outside the gates of Buckingham Palace be terrorism? Or at least considered an act of terrorism? Like, like shouldn't there be like military and police just swarming the place? I mean, there might be an officer or two here, but it's mostly just our heroes fighting civilians. Um, really weird. Uh, the brouhaha is broken up by the arrival of Betsy Britton and Pete Wisdom, fresh off a of chatting up the Queen. They're swarmed by the media. So, uh, were, were these reporters and whatnot involved in the riot we just saw? I don't know. Betsy joins her crew, reveals that they are now accountable to the Queen tells them that she had to fill out a bunch of Captain Brittany paperwork and then officially christens her team Excalibur. Then, an info page. A boring info page that uses the word otherworld about, other about 50 times. Um, back to comics and back to the lighthouse, our team discusses their next move. 
Now, Gambit, he naturally wants to save Rogue. He really doesn't care about anything else. He agrees with Gambit. If you recall, he needed Rogue for something way back in the first issue, so he's pretty keen on, you know, shaking her out of her stasis. Betsy, however, has a more pressing engagement to attend to. She's got to meet up with the meanest PTA mom there is, the dread Mariana Stern. And she's got some coven crap to attend to, which I don't care about. But at least we're not in other world. Uh, Pete Wisdom says he'll be accompanying her, so at least the scene will probably have a twinge of aloofness to it. He claims that he now has need of Gambit and Richter to procure some items secreted into the ground, and uh, we'll get there. But first, let's head back to Krakoa with Jubilee and Shogo. Upon popping through the portal, she runs into Megan and the, and the Braddock brat. Megan, who... I'll just say it. Uh, the faces we're getting this issue... I said the art's a little bit iffy. These just aren't up to the usual standard of Marcus Toe work. Uh, the faces are weird. Um, that applies to most of our characters, but Megan especially... Like, it almost looks as though her face, like, melted a little bit and slid down her head and gathered near her chin. It's very, very off-putting. Anywho, she and Jubilee talk for a bit, and we learn that Megan and little Margaret will be staying on Krakoa until Brian returns from Otherworld. Jubilee is certain that it, you know, won't be a long wait. Uh, we also learn that the anti-mutant protesters rallied outside the Braddock Academy. Uh, they're really, really upset that their Captain Britain is now a mutant. And part of me wonders if this is like a nebulous commentary on politics. Probably. Uh, this chat is interrupted by our resident pervert, Jamie Braddock, who is looking rather Vartoxian, lounged up, lounged out, wearing nothing but a loincloth and a mustache. Jubilee punches him in the face for being a jackass, which, I don't know, seems like maybe something Jamie would usually pay women to do. From here, we go to an info page. It's the Braddock family tree. And this feels wildly unnecessary. The only thing worth noting here is that Elizabeth Braddock, that's Betsy, Brian, and Jamie's mother, she's got a branch on this tree that leads to nobody. It just kind of fades out. We don't know who or what she sprung from. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, or maybe it just doesn't matter, which is why they didn't include it, but I don't think they'd include the partial line if it didn't matter. So I guess we'll find out, or maybe we won't. Now, we've reached the staples of the issue. And uh, things are about to get a wee bit sloggy. We join Gambit and Richter as they're digging through the underground be below the moorlands. They're looking for crystals per A's instruction. Gambit wonders why A needed a thief if they're just going to be taking some stuff that they find underground. It's not like uh, they're taking something that you know belongs to someone else, right? <sighs> now, did somebody just roll an 18? Because uh, enter the druids. We've got the uh, worst dungeon master ever here. Richter continues blasting his way down, and they come to a clearing which is full of bones and crystals, and also druids. Richter peruses some crystals that are dull blue in color. Gambit, assuming this is what they need, he, he pockets them. Then, more rumbling, but none of it from Richter himself. It's the druids, and the druids greet Richter as one of their own, because he's one with the ability to wield the earth from birth. He's neither human nor fey. Richter tries to convince them that they're all on the same side. They all have a dislike of Coven Akaba and whatnot, even though the druids don't appear to have come in anything but peace. I mean, they approach Richter, and they start dressing him in their in their clothes, you know? They, they put this, like, weird face paint on him. They cover him in a cloak. It, it's like they accept him as one of their own. 
They then hand our man some glowing pink crystals, since the dull blue ones were just left out as decoys. Now, the druid boss, I think, he then turns his attention to Gambit, who he just refers to as a thief, and a thief must be banished. Gambit is pushed off the edge of an underground cliff and is just, you know, holding on for dear life. Richter goes to help him, but then the earth begins to quiver. Old Julio appears to be losing control of his powers again. But just as Julio loses his control, Gambit loses his grip and plummets into the great unknown. We then shift scenes to the meeting house of Covenacaba, the Valiente Room. Now, Betsy and Peter meeting with the dread Mariana Stern and a rather hirsute gentleman named Reuben. Now, Reuben. <laughs> Reuben's a pretty glib fella. He's got this, like, weird passive-aggressive way about him that really seems to get under Betsy Britton's skin. He refers to humility as something far more powerful than any mutant-born ability. Pete Wisdom acts, well, aloof, and he sips his drink. Now, Betsy asks these two why they chose the name Akaba, which only sends old Reuben into another passive-aggressive screed. He talks about how many mutants were probably killed on Akaba before one was born powerful enough to actually do anything about it. This ticks Betsy off, and she gets in the man's face, almost proving his point about humility. Even Pete Wisdom tries to get her to settle her tea kettle here. Now, Betsy rails on about having the full support of the crown and how the queen actually defers to her own judgment. Reuben, he just sits back. It's like he's given Betsy all the rope in the world to hang herself here. Betsy accuses the coven of being a trap, to which Reuben corrects her. They're not so much a trap as they are a distraction. Now, you see, Otherworld, Otherworld, ugh, is a fragile place, right? And Betsy Britton and company soaring out of it on a fire-breathing dragon kind of damaged the very fabric of the place, which allowed for some otherworldly beasts to break out into the real world. And so we see some giant medieval-looking horrors at various points of interest in the area, including a multi-headed hydra chilling out at Stonehenge. So Reuben gives, gives Betsy a look and is all, is all like, smooth move, Exlax, which uh, causes her to run out the door. We wrap up atop the lighthouse where A.E. is chatting to the comatose rogue about the weird otherworldly beasties that have just arrived on their shores. He alludes to the fact that uh, they're ready for this because, uh, well, they've been waiting for it to happen. Just then, in our final panel, Rogue wakes up. And that is Excalibur number four. The next book we'll be taking a look at is New Mutants number four, which, at this point, I'm guessing maybe it'll feature like a trip to the supermarket with skin or something. Maybe we'll go to the DMV with uh, with Psyche or Sink, whatever the hell his name is. I, you just never know what to expect from New Mutants. You know, you expect the Shi'ar and you get something else. So I'm not even going to hazard a guess as to what this issue will be. But before we get there, let's talk about what we just read. So this was probably, no, definitely the strongest issue of Excalibur yet. Uh, we had limited Otherworld stuff, and a fair amount of opportunity to catch up with our cast. I mean, I could do without the druids and whatnot, but other than other than them showing up, I, I really dug this. Um, I really like this Reuben fellow. Uh, he seems like such a jerk, and just the very, <laughs> the, like the very picture of the person you'd never want to be in a debate with. Uh, we have him here, and he kind of plays Betsy like a fiddle, right? It's all very well done. Very, you know, slow burn, letting her just percolate and just lose her stuff. 
Seeing him hanging out with Marianna friggin' Stern gave me this knee-jerk, I-could-give-a-crap feeling towards him, but it didn't take him long to win me over. His, uh, you know, sorta kinda passive-aggressive, smarmy dialogue was really cool. Uh, definitely the sorta a-hole who could find his way getting under just about anybody's skin. I was also pleased that this scene, in particular, didn't turn into Pete Wisdom being the smartest dude in the room. I feel like that's uh, how a lot of Pete Wisdom scenes go, almost making him like a poor man's John Constantine, which... I guess he sort of kind of is, in a way. <laughs> um, Gambit and Richter in the underground. Eh, not my favorite sort of thing. Uh, as I've said before, and I probably will again, the druids do nothing for me. Um, being positive, it is interesting seeing Gambit head into a mission at the behest of Apocalypse, however. I, I guess he'll pretty much trust anybody if it means we'll get the you know even the slightest possibility of saving Rogue, so that's cool enough. Uh, keeping it with Gambit here, that scene in front of Buckingham Palace, pretty baffling. Um, you'd almost expect for there to be some sort of consequence for their behavior, but it got brushed away pretty quickly. Uh, I mentioned it a couple times during the synopsis, the art. Maybe it's just me, but it doesn't feel like it's up to the level of quality we've come to expect from Marcus Toe. Uh, it looks a bit rushed, though I'm probably not the best to judge for that sort of thing. It just... It just looked a step off, is all. It's still, you know, very good, but it's just not what not what we're used to. Uh, the ending with the dragons and beasts coming through Otherworld, uh, or coming through from Otherworld, that only reminds me that, you know, hey, we're not done with Otherworld just yet. <laughs> I was hoping, with uh, Betsy and Morgan Le Fay saying, you know, see ya, I was hoping we were done for a little while, but it looks like we're not. So despite the fact that I mostly enjoyed this issue, I mean, we still got that, uh, that otherworldly specter looming overhead. Um, I do look forward to Otherworld being firmly in our rear view, and of course that is assuming that there'll ever be a day like that. Uh, overall, though, really dug this issue. Unfortunately, I can't say as I'm looking forward to what's to come, because it looks like just more Otherworld and, uh, and more Druids, so... I guess we'll uh, we'll take it as it comes, right? Now, before I let you guys go, we got a little bit of mailbag dipping to do, and uh, first we will uh, we will start with Damien, and this is regarding X Force number three. He says, "I have to start by complimenting the cover of this issue. Gene looks so cool, and yes, X Force number three has a really really awesome cover that just leaps off the racks at you." Um, it's, you know, Jean and a Cerebro helmet, but it's got, like, this, like, weird psychedelic mod sort of coloring to it. it. It's really, really cool. It might be the best cover I've seen since the Dawn of X hit. It's just so striking, and just it's just real beautiful to look at. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I was interested to hear you say that the Professor was resurrected quickly. This really stuck with me as I read X of Tens Part 2 yesterday, and one of the plot points was that the resurrections usually take a long time. This is not the impression given here. The only thing that delayed this resurrection was Gene working out how to operate Cerebro. I feel more and more like we're being expected to have picked up plot points that were left out of the books. And yes, pretty quick resurrection, and I haven't read any of the X of Ten stuff yet. Um, and uh, I won't probably until, I don't know, at this rate, December or January. Um... But part of me wonders if uh, there's going to be uh, like a reveal that there are like always extra Professor X bodies cooking, you know? I mean, we already know that Proteus gets a new Xavier host body every week or so, so maybe that hastened his this particular resurrection process. 
that is, of course, just like my head cannon. You know, the, the, the hamster running on the wheel in my head, trying to make sense of it or reconcile the quickness. If, uh, if we are hearing that this is a, you know, lab- laborious process uh, for the resurrections. Because, um, I mean, we don't know about the, like, the time frame from the Orcus mission to, you know, Cyclops and the, uh, the other seven or six coming back. We don't know the time frame on that, really. I, unless it was... Unless I, you know, I am a dense guy, so maybe I missed it. But back to Damien's message. He says, The Beast and Gene conversation about death was a weird one. You reacted as though visiting graveyards is unusual. Here in the UK, it's not uncommon for people to visit graveyards or cemeteries for a day out, and a lot of the bigger ones have picnic areas and cafes. They're often seen as just a shared public space. I know when my mom would take me and my sister to graveyards, she would occupy us with looking for the longest-lived person, the youngest-lived person, and for unusual names. Looking back, it's blatantly obvious that she was just getting us to practice our reading and arithmetic. It was all about education with my mom. I wouldn't say spending time in graveyards makes you unafraid of death, though, or that being unafraid makes you more heroic. Surely, true heroism requires some element of personal risk, and that's totally interesting. I've... I've never visited a graveyard outside of, uh, you know, going to pay respects. Um, so I guess, I guess that this show is making me uh, more worldly, you know, by the episode here, via osmosis. <laughs> I'm, I'm being educated vicariously through uh, everyone else's experiences. That's, uh, that's very interesting, though. And it does make a lot of sense as, um, as practice for math and practice for reading. That makes a ton of sense. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe just being in Arizona, it's too hot to be outside most of the year, so we don't really do that sort of thing. I mean, but even back in New York, we didn't do that sort of thing. At least, I, I guess I was younger. Maybe it is, you know, common practice here, too. Maybe other folks will reach out and let me know. Um, back to Damien, he says, As for your question about deaths, I think Hank is about the only character on this team who hasn't died and been resurrected, so was the only person who Gene could have that conversation with. Such a weird choice, and... I hadn't thought about that. <clears throat> now, Beast might actually be like the only legacy Marvel character who hasn't been killed off a handful of times. That's that's a really good point that I hadn't considered. Because, I mean, all the rest of the original five... Has Iceman died? He probably has. <laughs> it's so sad we can say that, right? Our, you know, growing up in the 90s, um, discovering the X-Men in the 90s, it was like... You knew the handful of X-Men that died because, like, they would get a trading card that, like, said that they died. And there would be, like, five of them. Now it's like you could have five trading cards of X-Men who haven't died. And you might have to put Beast on all five of them, for all I know. Um, Damien continues, You're definitely right that these deep conversations are very forced and inorganic. It feeds into the idea that Krakoa is altering the character somehow. In some ways, you have to admire Hickman for setting up the idea that everything is being manipulated by Mora because it means when I read bad dialogue, I wonder if it's a sign that Jean was altered in her post-Orcus resurrection. He's given the creators a perfect excuse for bad writing. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, I, I, you know, I wonder if that's the case. <laughs> it's, it's all Krakoa's fault that our characters are all engaging in these wildly unsubtle and awful discussions in X-Force. It's it's definitely food for thought, though. Um, I mean, having a puppet master in the background is certainly one way of lampshading things like eccentricities and out-of-character uh, conversations and, and just out-of-character behaviors. Um, definitely, you know, if that shoe was ever to drop, it would just make everything 
hunky-dory, right? Uh, everything would make perfect sense because it's, you know, Beast isn't a jerk. He's just being, you know, manipulated. Or Jean isn't being overly flowery and poetic. She's just, you know, this is just uh, the way things are here. Um, Damien wraps up. He says, I don't know if I said it in my recent comments, but I just wanted to thank you again for the amount of work you're putting into this series. It's really enjoyable to be a part of it. And, well, thank you. I'm beyond happy that you are a part of it as well. Um, it really means a lot. I always look forward to your messages, and I, and I really enjoy uh, getting the opportunity to respond to them here. Um, I know it might sound, you know, glib when I say I'm learning things from uh, from these letters, but I actually am. You know, I'm actually the takeaways that I'm getting here are helping to make this entire endeavor uh, better, more well-rounded. You know, I'm I'm being able to see. I'm being able to experience this through so many different points of view, and it's just wonderful. It's a real treat, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. Um, This is, I mean, what I say about a lot of my work is it doesn't look like much, but it takes a lot of time. And, uh, I mean, the show might not sound like much, but, yeah, it does take some time. Um, I, I think I've mentioned this earlier, but, I mean, I'm setting an alarm to wake up before it gets light out so I can work on my show notes before the day, you know, really starts and, you know, things like work, school and, and, you know, family and all sorts of stuff, you know, start to, start to occupy my time. So it's a, it it is an investment in time, but, uh, but I feel like I'm, I'm getting as much out of it as I'm putting into it, which is a pretty good place to be. So, uh, thank you again for your message and thank you for always being there. It's, it really means a lot to me. Uh, next, we have a message from Al Sedano, and this is regarding House of X number three. Now, he's, you know, he's early on in the series here, which I love because I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. It's it's letting me see how someone else is getting, is learning about the Hoxpox stuff here. It's it's putting me on the other side of the fence here where I know the stuff that happened in it, and I'm getting to see how someone else is experiencing it and reacting to it. So it's really cool. Um, Al says, so it's once again time for me to send you my thoughts. This time it's episode six on House of X number three. First of all, I hope I'm not one of the people giving you clapback about your opinions on the text or info pages. You have yours and I have mine, but it's just opinions. And no, no, no. Uh, this is, uh, when I was talking about that, that was just during like the real time release of these episodes. Um, because the feedback I'd received on the info pages was pretty split. Uh, surprisingly split even. I kind of assumed... You know, Jonathan Hickman, he's, he's, a, he's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. He's very well respected by um, the comics community online and off. So I kind of assumed I'd be like the lone man on an island, like daring to say anything negative about, you know, this this artistic or, or literary choice of how to, how to give information, how to share information. But I was shocked that it was pretty evenly split. Um, and, and like I said then and now... If I were reading this as a collected edition, or maybe even just reading one issue every couple of weeks as they were released, I doubt I'd even realize that there were so many of them, you know? I think the, 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 the pace and frequency in which I'm reading them, I'm reading an issue a day, you know? And then I'm writing a 20 page document about each issue. So things like info pages really, really stand out to me going at this pace. And I think it makes it a little bit more apparent um, because I'm trying to not only receive the information, but then again, share it, you know, with with folks who may not have read this yet, maybe curious about reading it, or maybe folks who haven't read it, you know, in a year 
or maybe people who are reading along. So I think the fact that uh, I'm doing it at the pace I'm doing it is making, you know, I, I said the thing where it's hail on a tin roof, you know, I feel like sometimes the info pages can be a bit of a bombardment, you know, just a lot of it. Um, back to Al, he says, now regarding your questions, exactly who is under the Cerebro helmet? I'm right there with you. Is it Xavier? And if it is, what version of him is it? There have been a few. And uh, <laughs> this was during a point in my Hoxpox discussion where I was I was making hot takes like, like an idiot. <laughs> I was going completely off the rails trying to trying to like be right you know um i took quite a few stabs in the dark on who i thought might be revealed as being under the cerebro helmet you know i was thinking you know we were never getting a good look at xavier's face so it's like well why are they hiding his face what you know could it be someone else and i really thought i was onto something when i guessed it might be like some sort of a sinister a mr sinister sort of a uh you know schema or whatever but nope wasn't him (laughs) You know, at least as far as we know at this point, it, it was purely Xavier. So, yeah, that was a that was a fun that was a fun conversation to have with myself, trying to trying to outsmart myself, and only wound up thinking too hard about stuff that uh, never happened. Uh, Al continues going back to the text pages on the bottom of the Project Achilles page. It says there are currently three mutants there. So if one of them is Sabretooth, who are the other two? Now, Project Achilles is, if I'm remembering right, that high-security that high security prison where we saw Sabretooth on trial. And, you know, I don't think that's been revealed yet. Uh, though I very well might be mistaken, I might have missed it, but I don't think they've uh, revealed, uh, at least at this point, that who the other two were. Uh, we knew Sabretooth was there because he was on trial, but couldn't say who the other ones are. Um, Al wraps up by saying, Finally, I've been thinking about doing a Marvel Hickman reread too, including his S.H.I.E.L.D. series and Secret Warriors. And you know, if I could somehow manifest a mutant power to add about six more hours to every day, I'd give some serious consideration to doing a Hickman Fantastic Four show. Now, I've talked about before how I kind of poisoned my own well when it came to his Fantastic Four run, because I... I'm a little touched... (laughs) I'm a little touched in the head, and uh, I had it in my head that this his run on Fantastic Four was leading to a reboot. So I was like in this constant fear that we were building to like a New 52-style reboot. And as such, I didn't allow myself to enjoy it because I was too busy projecting my concerns about the future onto it. I think it'd be interesting to give that another look now that we're so far removed from it. I don't know, maybe maybe if somewhere down the line I ever get the urge to reopen the Patreon or something, I'll do something with it. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't figured out how to cram those extra hours into the day, but definitely something I'd love to uh, revisit. Unfortunately, being a somewhat prolific uh, content creator, it's hard to read things for fun anymore without, you know, making the multitaskers and actually using them as content. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But thank you so much for your thoughts, Al. I... I, I always look forward to them, especially, you know, since you are coming coming at it from, uh, you know, you're still in Hoxbox and you're still learning all these things. And I, I can't wait until you get up to uh, part nine. That's going to be 
that's going to be a fun email that I'm looking forward to reading for sure. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a tweet from Baby Skeletor at Skeletor Baby. He says, a long weekend of listening to me talk X-Men comics, playing retro video games, reading evil Ernie back issues with thrash metal serving as soundtracks. Time well spent. And that's awesome. Um, I've mentioned before, uh, anytime someone reaches out and tells me that they've binged on something that I've been a part of has been uh, humbling and just amazing. Uh, I love it. I love hearing that. It's just a... Uh, it... it it fills me with uh, a little bit of guilt <laughs> because I'm occupying so much of someone's time, but at the same time, it's just it's just awesome. You know, it's awesome to think about that. Uh, you know, that I'm, my my voice is in someone's head. That's that's awesome. And uh, Baby Skeletor here, uh, I, I thanked him, and uh, and they're actually talking about listening to a different X Men show. This is from Claremont to Claremont, an X Men podcast, which. A, I absolutely appreciate anyone listening to that show because that is truly a labor of love with emphasis on the labor. <laughs> and B, it isn't a show I promote nearly as much as maybe I ought to, considering how much work goes into it. Uh, From Claremont to Claremont is a program, for those that don't know, because I really don't talk about it all that much. It's an every now and again program on this channel where me and a group of my friends discuss an entire month's worth of X-Men books starting with those cover dated October 1991. Now October 1991, that's the cover month where X-Men Volume 2 Number 1 hit the stands. So that's where we started and uh, the goal is to work our way through the, you know, the in-between Claremont's run. You know, the, the Lobdell, the Niciesa, everything from, you know, X-Men... Volume 2, even though the first three issues of that do include Claremont work, we wanted to cover that just as completionists. But, uh, and the, the show is broken up into segments. And there are segments for every single X book of the month. So we have X Men Volume 2, Uncanny X Men, X Factor, X Force, Excalibur, Wolverine, Alpha Flight, Marvel Comics Presents, and all the X happenings in Wizard Magazine. And, uh, you know, we go through the issues and, and talk about them. It's, you know, a comics podcast. It's kind of what you do. And these shows take me uh, about... They take me well over 100 hours to put together. Because uh, th- these are long episodes. Um, there are only two episodes up at this point. They were supposed to be monthly, but uh, I kind of lost my passion for it after, after Reggie passed away this spring. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was read a comic book um, because I had associated so much of my comics fandom with what Reggie and I did together. And uh, so I just kind of stopped, you know. Um, but I-, I have been slowly but surely putting together the third episode over the course of the past few months. Um, and as I mentioned, the episodes aren't very long. The first episode is around 10 hours long. The second is closer to 13 hours long. The third, uh, it's probably about two-thirds of the way done, and it's probably, I think it's sitting at around nine hours or so, so by the time all said and done, it'll probably be closer to 13 to 15 hours, so it's going to be another long one. I, I hope to have it done, I hope to have it done before Thanksgiving. Um, I know folks are getting busy again, because uh, the world is starting to sort of kind of reopen, so uh, time is a premium for everybody, and I understand that, and uh and to be honest, I've drugged my feet on it so long. It's a, uh, it's, it, but it it is still a priority. It is still something I'd like to do. So, 
you know, we're still pointed forward on that. So hopefully soon enough, episode three will come out. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Baby Skeletor, for uh, for listening and for reaching out. Um, it really means a lot. It really does mean a lot. Um, that show, that sh- like I said, it's a big, huge time investment. And uh, to be completely honest, I, I kind of walked away from the first two issues a little bit disappointed. Um, because I... I, I thought it would be more warmly received, or at least more widely received, and uh, it was not. <laughs> you know, this was not a uh, "if you build it, they will come" thing. It's a uh, "if you build it, it'll be there." Is, is sort of uh, is sort of the way it goes. But uh, it means the world to me that you listen to it. Um, it is a very long show, but I think that's where we'll put a pin on it for today. Uh, next up, we will be discussing New Mutants, and we'll see what happens. Either on, you know, Beak's Farm, Shayar Space, or maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe Husk will file her nails for 23 pages. We'll see how it goes. But, uh, you know, if you need to get, if you need to, if you want to get a hold of me, because nobody needs to get a hold of me, if you want to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes at Chris's on uh, I also just put up a text review. Uh, for a weird X-Men book. This is a book that, uh, for a long, longest time, I thought was an urban legend. This is the Uncanny X-Men visit the, the was it the State Fair of Texas, and uh, it was a book that haunted me because it would always show up in the Wizard Price Guide, and I could never find it, and I could never find anyone who would ever claim to have seen it. So uh, I finally found it about a year ago, and I've been looking for just an opportunity to put it out there, and I decided today, why not? Let's just do it. So, if you're interested in seeing the X-Men visit the uh, Texas State Fair and fight Magneto and see a, a new mutant who only appears once, um, it's there. <laughs> it's there for you at chrisisoninfinitearths.com. Uh, there's also the X-Lapsed page, xlapsed.chrisisoninfinitearths.com. Uh, we're on Facebook at 90s X-Men. We're on Tumblr at xlapsed, I guess. Um, and there's also the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com where there's tons of stuff to listen to with much more to come. But I think that's where I'll leave it. One more giant thank you for spending your time with me, sharing your time with me, and just being there with me. <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. Uh, now, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. And you may-
Hello, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode number 33 of X-Lapsed. Hard to believe, but now we are just about a third of the way to uh, episode 100, or I guess episode 99, uh, more accurately. But it's amazing how fast time goes when you're, uh, well, when you're not paying attention, right? Today we're going to be following up with a series that kind of, in my opinion, dropped the ball a little bit with its third issue. Uh, we're going into the fourth issue of New Mutants, Volume 4. Uh, this had a February 2020 cover date. The story is called Fast and Furious, written by Ed Brisson with art by Marco Fila. Fila? Maybe. Uh, colors, Carlos Lopez, Led is VCs, Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Our edits are Bezo White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now we open with our roll call, and uh, yeah, as we as we've been tending to do <laughs> over the past couple of uh, episodes here, we've got Armor, Glob, Sage, Boom Boom, Maxime, Manon, Beak, Angel, the other Angel. Then two pages of credits, and then an info. Whoa, whoa not an info page. We're actually going right into comics. I can't believe it. Okay, let's get into it. We open on Krakoa, and it looks as though the uh, never-ending party at Carousel is uh, well still happening. We join Boom Boom as she takes the Captain Kate role and gets all sloppy drunk. She bumps into and spills her whiskey all over Pixie, who helps her get back home. Along the way, Tabitha complains about how she did armor a solid, you know, helping get those meds, and never even got a thank you. Pixie informs her that armor hasn't made it home just yet, and that kind of, uh, you know, kind of tweaks Boom Boom's eyebrow a bit. She's... You know, wondering why they didn't get back yet. Didn't seem like it was too hard a mission. They were just going to go, cure the dude, and come back with, you know, with Beacon Angel. So, let's hop back to Nebraska, where those hicks have the bow husks and company under lockdown in the cellar. Armor is designated as the negotiator, or at least a point of contact. I guess, uh, you know, out of this gangly grip of uh, goofballs involved, she does look the most capable. I don't know. She's probably the same person who, like, the waitress at any restaurant instinctively hands the check to, even though there are, like, a dozen other people at the table. That would be a, uh, that would be something that, uh, that me and Armor share. Uh, uh, you know, we also have a very similar haircut, so there's that, too. Now, it's worth noting that all of our mutant heroes are wearing, say it with me, power-dampening collars. <sighs> Anywho, the lead hick, well, actually, they're not hicks. They're actually members of a cartel. He's about to lay out his story for Armor here. He's going to say everything he needs saying. And it's basically a screed against, you know, the greed of Big Pharma, which, I mean, do we gotta? I guess we do. Uh, This fella is from uh, the Central American country or republic, Costa Perdida, which I believe translates to Lost Coast. Uh, Anywho, in a somewhat prescient bit of storytelling, our lead bad guy, he talks about an illness without a cure that's sweeping his nation and how the killer disease is now referred to as the Perdita Fever, named after his little republic. Now, this sickness is caused by the republic being downstream by some uh, white people-owned industries which have polluted the water. We hear that something like 20,000 San Bertidans have died, uh, many, many, many more have been sick, 
And there is a vaccine that was developed. However, at $1,000 per inoculation, it's not all that realistic for the, uh, for the locals. Now, the lead cartel guy, I think his name might be Tumalo. Uh, he had this uh, controversial pharma CEO dealt with, which is to say he had that controversial pharma CEO killed. And in fact, we get an entire boring info page about it. Now, back to comics, Tumalo has now set his sights on mutants, you know, the same mutants who are currently holding the world hostage with their miracle drugs. Now, he wants a meeting with someone who can negotiate terms, you know, get get some of this, these meds into his hands. Now, Armor tells him that prof- about Professor Xavier's treaty and says that, hey, you know, it's just as easy as Costa Perdita signing up and they'll get all the meds they're going to ever need. Well, here comes the rub. Mr. Tumalo here, he doesn't want the pre- his president to sign the treaty with Xavier because then the meds will be overflowing. They'll be readily available, they'll be free for everybody, and, uh, well, you see, the cartel wants to control the meds and also, you know, corner that market. So basically becoming the big pharma he claims to hate so much. Now, he gives Armor a day to think it over. You know, he, are you going to talk or are you not going to talk? You, hear, you sleep on it, you know? But he says that nobody's going to eat until she does. Though he suggests maybe they'll have a big old party, a fiesta even, if she makes the right decision. We jump back to Krakoa, and Boom Boom is rattling Sage's cage about, well, what she does all day. Which is, uh, you know, taking attendance and whatnot. Uh, She even suggests that she ought to change her name to, uh, hey, that one page in every Dawn of X comic we look at, The Roll Call. Sage goes on to make fun of Boom Boom for changing her codename as often as her underwear, Though she only lists about four, four code names, which makes me think uh, old Tabitha might not be all that fresh. Uh, so maybe we just won't take that quite as literally. Anywho, they talk about Armor and the gang, and Boom Boom learns that the Nebraska Quartet have been gone for now five days. We jump back to Nebraska and back to the basement, and the collared mutants try to plan their next move. They also talk about, you know, how hungry they are. Armor's, Armor's sitting there, she looks like she's really struggling with the decision she's been asked to make. We pop back to Krakoa, and we spend an entire page watching Boom Boom step through a portal. This could have been a single panel, or we could have just assumed that she went if she showed up in Nebraska, but nope, we get a full page of her stepping through a portal. The next day, Armor reveals that she's made her decision, and that she will return to Krakoa to fetch someone who can negotiate. Tumalo tells her that, in no uncertain terms, if she returns with a telepath, Wolverine, or Magneto, the children will be killed. Armor asks how the cartel knew that Beacon Angel were living on this farm, and so the man yanks out his smartphone and brings up the DOX homepage. Now, I'm guessing that DOX is some sort of gossip magazine. Uh, not really sure what DOX stands for other than, you know, Dawn of X. But I'm sure it's something, and I'm sure we'll find out somewhere down the line. Anywho, Beak, Angel, and the kids, they're on the cover of this DOX mag with the headline, Mutants in Pilger, Pilger, Nebraska. So it looks like the mutants are viewed as something of celebrities in some circles here, and I'm guessing this is something we'll probably revisit as we work our way through uh, these, uh, these issues. Now, Armor is being escorted to the nearest portal, and Tumalo reminds her that, uh, hey, you know what? Everybody's lives are in your hands, so, <laughs> you know, make the right decisions, basically. We had an info page on Costa Perdita, and it's a map and a brief history. Yeah, it's there if you want it. Back to comics and back to the basement. The kids have been given what looks like bowls of gruel to eat. Looks kind of like something out of Olive of a Twist or something. 
Angel mentions how, due to the way she and some of her children eat, this ain't gonna work. Now you see, she's gotta yak up on the food to break it down a bit so it can be digested. And in order for her to use her mutant yakking ability, she's gonna have to be uncollared. Well, the cartelli ain't buying it, at least not at first. He does come around, however, and detaches Angel's, Angel's collar so she can, you know, make that disgusting bowl of gruel even more so. Angel spits her glowing green spit into the bowl, which nearly makes the cartelli's wretch. Then, Angel spits over to Maxime and Manon's collars, dissolving them. They grab the cartelli Andre, and they use their powers of influence to have him draw on his comp- cartelli compatriot, and I think his name is Dalen. You see, I actually had to use the Marvel Wiki to confirm their names. And, you know, if I scroll down, what do you know? Nobody bothered to synopsize this one either. It's, uh, you know, only the hits will get the clicks, so why would anybody bother sinking any time into New Mutants Volume 4, Number 4, right? Just me. Uh, Glob Herman grabs Angel and Beacon the kids and shields them, just in case things go sideways, or more sideways, I guess. Uh, Manon and Magzim uh, look positively terrifying here. They're all black-eyed and gray-skinned and whatnot. Looks very, very scary, and uh, really cool, actually. Uh, now, they're controlling the two cartellis, and ultimately, they shoot each other to death. The sound of their gunshots, however, rings out, you know, and everyone outside can hear it. Armor, who still hasn't left yet, she just assumes that the cartel just took out her friends. And even Tumalo does not look happy with what might have just happened. Armor is kicked to the ground by another crew of cartellis and told to stand back up or they'll kill her. Suddenly, the cartel's hoopty pickup truck goes boom, only after someone off-panel says, tick, tick, tick. Bada-bing, bada-boom-boom. And uh, we're out of here, and uh, it looks as though this story arc must continue. But next, we'll be talking about X-Force number four. But how about we talk about what we just read? Okay, right off the bat. I was kind of hoping this would be uh, the capper on this uh, weird misplaced (laughs) two-parter. I was hoping it would be a weird misplaced two-parter, but... Yeah, it looks like this bugger's gonna linger for a little bit. Um, I'm now... I haven't read ahead. I haven't even flipped ahead. Um... And now I'm worrying that we're going to go, like, a full 12 issues, jumping back and forth between the Shi'ar space story and the ones on the farm, maybe, like, two at a time. But I I really hope not. I really hope not. Um, Now, this entire story felt felt like it was trying to teach the readership that big corporations are bad. Being written by someone collecting a check from Disney? Eh, okay. Um, Yeah, corporations are bad. We get it. Um, I get what they're going with here, right? What they're going for here. Uh, it just feels a bit too soapboxy for me to kind of roll with. Um, big big pharma being bad feels like a pretty safe target. I mean, I think you're not going to get a lot of argument that the ph- pharmaceutical industry is wildly greedy and cares more about the bottom line than actually helping the people with the wonderful things that they create in their laboratories. Um I will say that it was interesting seeing this from the point of view of a cartel, though. That much I'll hand them. Because we have our man Tumalo. He starts his screed, and he's, like, painting his people as victims and how bad the pharmaceutical companies are. But when it all comes back around, it looks as though he's kind of just jealous of pharma's hustle, right? (laughs) They've been successful in their shakedown, and he wants a piece of that pie. He wants all the loot. He wants all the power. He wants all the control. And that's all fair enough. That was probably the best bit of this issue because, um, 
it kind of zigged where I was expecting it to zag. Um, sticking with some good points, let's let's talk a little bit more about good points. Uh, the cartelli showing uh, a little bit of humility in the basement, allowing Angel to feed her children. That was pretty nice. Because I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's human and mutant, and you know, every every you know bit and piece here. But at the end of the day, they're all just people, right? I mean, who's to say that poor dead Andre or poor dead the other guy didn't have families and children of their own, right? So, humility was uh, is was was in, was on display, and I like that. Uh, Manon and Maxime, oof, the scenes with with them controlling those two cartellis, they were horrifying. Um, I thought that was super cool. I, I don't know these characters from anywhere besides the the previous issue, so. I might have to track down some more stuff that they're in because that was pretty cool, and they don't seem—they don't seem heroic, you know. I—I I wonder, like, I don't know where they were introduced. Were they introduced as good guys? I don't know. I mean, they seem very, very powerful, and they seem kind of evil. <laughs> so uh, maybe after uh, Dawn of X shakes out, we will—we'll uh, see where they land, uh, where their constitution lies, right? I'm also intrigued by learning whatever uh, D.O.X. or Docs magazine might uh, might turn out to be here. I wonder if it's going to be like a TMZ for mutants or something. I think that could be interesting. Um, I mean, we've played with the concept of mutant as celebrity, celebrity like even going back to like Ecstatics um, and, and X-Force before that. And it's been a little while, I think, since we've uh, really touched on this, though. Again, I have been away, so it could be something very, very common. But uh, I, I think that could be a fun angle to uh, to play with. Having, you know, some reporters try to follow them around, try to snap candid pictures. I think that that, that just could be interesting. It, it Then again, it could not be interesting, but I'm willing to uh, give it the benefit of the doubt. Now, how about we talk about Tabitha, Miss Boom Boom? Um... Why are we getting so many drunk mutants? Is this supposed to appeal to, like, edgy teenagers or something? It feels just so, so misdirected. I mean, come on, Marvel. You gotta know that these books are mostly being bought by people in their late 30s and up, right? Come on. And I'd like to think that people in my cohort and older are kind of overthinking it's cool to get sloppy-ass drunk. Like, as a, you know, thing. I mean, sure, drink if you like, get drunk if you want to, but this whole, like, feeling that mutant drinking equals cool writing already felt way too try-hard back in Marauders number one. Now it just feels lazy. Um, again, that's just me. Different strokes, different folks, but uh, for me, it just kind of makes me cringe. It makes me feel like the writer's trying to be, they're trying a little too hard to, to be cool. Uh, speaking of unpleasant things, let's talk about Sage. Why is she still here? She clearly hates everyone and everything. Like, shouldn't she leave? Shouldn't she go to, like, an uninhabited island somewhere? I mean, it's to the point where I cringe every time I see her because I'm expecting her to be, like, snippy and snarky. It's That's not deep characterization. That's not layers. That's just writing an a-hole. <laughs> and that's what Sage feels like here. Um, one more thing here. The art. Definitely a step down. Um, I complained a little bit last issue about how... Academy X Flaviano's work looked, but this is like a step down even from that. Um, for seasoned X fans, like if we were to say Flaviano or Flaviano, however you say that, was Joe Majuara, Marco Fila is Roger Cruz. Passably similar at first glance, but when you look close, 
you can see the wrinkles. You know, you can see where you can see where it is uh, not what you're looking for. Um, still, you know, fine, fine art, but just not what uh, not what we got from Flaviano, and certainly not what we got from Rodriguez. So that is what it is. I feel weird always. I always feel weird talking about art, but uh, here we are, right? Uh, overall, uh, not digging this. <laughs> I'm still not digging this here. And uh, let's see here. I'm going to actually flip through my long box, or my short box full of these unread Dawn of X books here, and I'm going to see what's on the cover of our next issue of New Mutants, just for my own curiosity here. And, uh, oh, well, we got Deathbird on there, so I guess we're going back to the Shi'ar for uh, issue five. So, yay. I guess we'll we'll see how it goes. We'll try to be optimistic, but uh, that's all I got to say about New Mutants number four. But uh, before I let you guys go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters here. We're going to start with Damien, and he is discussing Fallen Angels number three. He says, I swear if I met Brian Hill, the writer of Fallen Angels, he would tell me that he writes comics but is really a poet. And, uh, you know, I've actually heard a few good things about the first few issues of the Hill run on Batman and the Outsiders that's about to come to a close. Though, while I have all of them, I can't even say that I ever opened one, so I I couldn't say how good or bad it was. Um, I'm a little morbidly curious to see. Uh, I know Raj al Ghul's on the cover of a lot of those books, and I hate Raj al Ghul. <laughs> that is just... He's one of my pet peeve, boring characters in uh, in the Batman Rogue Gallery. I can't deal with Raj Al Ghul or Raj Al Ghul stories, but uh, yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder how how that goes. Uh, back to Damien, he says, "I really question the point of this series. As you say, they keep repeating the same few plot points. At the end of issue three, we're back at the first panel of issue one, and yep." We're getting the same shocking revelations in every issue. Uh, I'm really not sure how this sort of thing even makes it to print. I mean, we're not even getting, like, any clever lampshading with X-23 saying, like, you know, duck went on. We already knew that, you know? Nothing nothing to even say, like, to, to even just draw attention to the fact that it's like, yeah, we're, we're getting the same information again. I guess we're, we're confirming it, but it's the same thing. Uh, Damien continues, the art is improving and feels less generic. And the cover to issue three is amazing. And yes, that cover is beautiful. The cover is excellent. And uh, I never really had a problem with Kudransky's art, though for an X book, it does feel out of place. I, it, he did a he did a run probably within the past year or two on Spawn, an extended run, I believe, because I think I might be one of the only like ten people still ordering Spawn <laughs> every month. Uh, I I don't read it. I haven't read it in a while, but I still get it because I got a soft spot for it. Uh, Kudransky's work would fit a lot better on Spawn, and, and and it did, in fact, fit a lot better on Spawn. Here, it just, it's, it's good. It just doesn't feel, it does doesn't fit an X book, in my opinion. Uh, Damien continues. I worry by the end of this series that we'll think it could have been one issue of Giant Size X Men instead of six issues, and I'll I'll up the ante on that. I worry that this series might have been better suited for the first two thirds of an X Force annual. <laughs> With, with an obnoxio the clown backup or something. Really not much meat on these bones here. I'm thinking we read... Let's give Marvel the benefit of the doubt and say there are 20 pages per issue. Um, so we're up to page 60. And uh, what we learned in these 60 pages could have filled a dozen? Maybe? I mean, it's just so samey. It's so repetitive. It's... 
there's a lot of wasted, a lot of wasted uh, paginal real estate here. Um, Damien continues, As for the issue threes, I have a real difficulty ranking them. Marauders is definitely the best, followed by X-Force, and Fallen Angels is the worst, but the rest all fall into a blur of averageness. And that's true, 100% true, I agree. I actually had a difficult time sorting them in my head myself. Um, and to be completely honest, I struggled a little bit just trying to remember what actually happened in each issue. Um, the only ones I could actually pinpoint into position are the same ones you did. Uh, Marauders was a, was a hard one, X-Force was a hard two, and Fallen Angels was a dead hard six. Um, the other three, they were just there. I mean, Excalibur was underwhelming. X-Men kind of sucked. New Mutants kind of sucked. Um, yeah. <laughs> the number threes were rough. Uh, I, I want to say the number fours are a little bit better so far, but uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, we haven't gotten to Fallen Angels yet, so who knows. Uh, Damien continues. I remember you saying way back when you hit the, hit the midpoint of Hoxpox that you were afraid it was going to hit that part four of six wall where the story treads water. I feel like we're in that zone now, and yeah, yeah, and it's one of those things that I wish I never noticed when I was reading. Like a lot of this comes from reading uh, post Jemis Casada. You know, um, after Bob Harris left, Jemis and Casada came in, and that's when the writing for the trade, in my opinion, really, really kicked off. Because back then they would start putting like the story titles on the cover. And they would be like you'd have an issue of X Uncanny X Men, and on the cover would be like the Draco Part One of Six. So you knew that there were going to be six parts, and it kind of trained you to like kind of expect the certain certain story beats. It's very very formulaic because it's very very manufactured and artificial. The stories went from being organic, and if they take two parts, they take two parts. If they take eight parts, they take eight parts. If they take fifteen parts, they take fifteen parts. To nope. Everything has to fit six. So if you have an issue and a half worth of story, you got to stretch that sucker to six. If you've got 12 issues of story, well, we're breaking the stories into, into two halves. You're doing sixes, damn it. And when you get to that, you know, like Captain America, Ice, part four of six, or the Draco, part four of six, you knew that you were not going to get anything <laughs> in that issue. And it, like, it makes you think... It's kind of like discovering how magic tricks are done, right? You can never really look at them the same way again. You begin to see all of the attempts of sleight of hand, and you start to notice every nuance and everything that's supposed to distract you. Because writing for the trade, whether Marvel wants to admit it or not, does exist. It does. I mean, th their friends at DC admitted as much. They said, hey, writing for the trade's a thing. Uh, it's, and it's really hard for us to unsee that. Uh, the tricks, the tropes, the shortcuts used, they're apparent. And, uh, I mean, yeah, we're, we're hitting that wall pretty hard here in, uh, in these early Dawn of X books here. It's as though, uh, it feels like we're already treading water with, uh, over half of these books. Um, which, you know, from a creative standpoint, begs the question of why they flooded the damn shelves with six Six, six books all, uh, all at once. Um, I mean, financially we know why, commercially we know why, bean-countingly we know why, but as a creative endeavor, it feels it feels like, a, I don't know, it's, it just feeds into the glut and the, uh, and the feeling that we are just kind of treading water. We're just waiting. 
We're just waiting for something to happen, and not much is. So uh, we'll take it as we get it, I guess, right? <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for writing in, Damien. Uh, next, we have Al Sedano, and he is talking about House of X number four. And he says, look at this, three days in a row. And I've also ordered volumes one and two of the Dawn of X trades. So I'm here, I'm here at least until the end of those. First of all, thanks for the trip down memory lane with mentioning alchemy. Now, alchemy is a character that was introduced back in X-Factor 41 um, from a contest Marvel ran. You know, uh, this was a ca- create-your-own-mutant contest. And I don't remember how he came up in conversation in the House of X episode, but... Uh, I do, have, I do have a soft spot for alchemy. Uh, Al continues, Damn, I remember when Marvel had that Create Your Own Mutant contest. I wonder if we'll be seeing him at some point. Considering they're bringing back WizKid, anything's possible. And it totally wouldn't surprise me to see alchemy make a comeback. Um, I mean, it really... It wouldn't surprise me to have him show up in a very important role. You know? <laughs> He'll just be the most powerful guy. I kind of... And the, I could be. I could be projecting, right? But, uh... I feel like creators like pulling these obscure characters out of the woodwork to get themselves cred with the longtime fans. So, like having Alchemy show up, I think that would, uh, I think that would like check a lot of boxes for some people, myself included. Uh, it reminds me of uh, that, you know, that one page in that awful Heroes in Crisis where uh, Tom King brought up the Protector, you know, from the New Teen Titans drug awareness issues, and it's and you know everybody kind of squeed that like, oh, we haven't seen him in forever, and. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, a year from now, half a comics Twitter might have alchemy avatars. Who knows, right? Um, personally, I'm still waiting for the return of Equus. Equus was a... I don't know how many, I don't know how much crossover there is between um, this show and my blog, but uh, I mentioned the other day I uh, covered the uh, Uncanny X-Men at the State Fair of Texas, which was a Dallas Times Tribune or Dallas... Dallas newspaper uh, It was a freebie that came in the Sunday paper And it was a full, you know, full-length comic book And in it, we met the centaur mutant named Equus uh, Short for equestrian, probably But I'm waiting for his return here. That, that's when I'll be impressed Bring me Equus And bring me Ice Cream, also Bring me Ice Cream Who, who I will be writing about in the next couple days <laughs> You'll see some stuff about the mutant known as Ice Cream uh, back to Al. He says, I like the text pages in the beginning of this issue. Very fitting to list all those who had gone before Orcus with their mutant hate. Though I do agree that the ones at the end were a waste. I loved how they call the Scarlet Witch a pretender. Ouch. I wonder how they feel about her brother. And I actually, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at a disadvantage here. I Are the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, are they still mutants? Are they inhumans or are they were they miracles? Is that the, the the lame thing that they tried to do to so they could use them in the movies? I don't I don't know how that went. Uh, I, are they related to Magneto anymore? I I don't even know. <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, I don't I wouldn't even know which sixteen Avengers books to buy to find out. So uh, I guess that's just one thing that I'll have to leave to the uh, to the theologians or something. Uh, Al continues, this issue was pretty intense. It was like Days of Future Past issue, but taking place in the current time. I can see your criticism about them not acting too too upset about the deaths of Archangel and Husk, but it makes sense. These are all veteran X-Men. I know that they knew there was no time for the luxury of grief. If it had some been if if it had been some of the newer kids, on the other hand, I would have been surprised if they acted this way. 
And I mean, the deaths and the lack of consideration for them is going to make a ton more sense given what's to come in Chapter 9 of Hox Pox. So uh, you'll you'll know. <laughs> you'll get that. Uh, though that, that, that big old shoe is going to drop. Uh, that said, I'd still expect, I don't know, a sad glance or something from the vets. I, I mean, they, they were just so aloof uh, to, the, to the deaths here. It's just like, it was like, you know, when something bad happens in an episode of Seinfeld and Jerry just goes, that's a shame. You know, it's like nobody cared. It, it, like you'd, like maybe maybe struggle with a tear in the eye. I, I don't know. Uh, speaking of the, oh, back to Ali says. Speaking of this team, I'm pretty sure the Monet is penance thing had been established before. I wasn't surprised at all that when that happened. Though I didn't realize she could still turn into penance. Not sure if I just didn't know about that or if it's new. And I kind of just chalked that up to something I couldn't remember. Um, I, I kind of gave up trying to make sense of it, and I just assumed it's something that happened before, and I just forgot. Uh, but then again, when you get to New Mutants number one, we're going to see Monet and the Penance twins. Again, though, that might just be something I can't remember reading an explanation for, too. <laughs> that might be something that is totally simple and totally makes sense. Um, I, I think that might have all come to light during that all-women X-Men volume. Uh, one of the Marvel Nows, where it was... a. Uh, just a volume, unadjectiveless X-Men, and it was all uh, all women. And I think I only made that about two issues into it before figuring out it was just like another X-Book to clog the shelves. There was really not a whole lot special about it. Um, I was unimpressed with a lot of the stuff that came out then. But uh, I gotta assume maybe that's when... Because I think that's when she left... Uh, X-Factor to return to the X-Men when X-Factor was the, you know, the the investigation uh, the detective club, whatever it was um, X-Factor Investigations, there we go um, that's when Monet came back to, you know, the X-Teams proper, so I wonder if that's where they put it I might have to might have to give that a flip through one of these days if, uh, if I can discover several more hours of the day uh, Al continues, also, I think Mystique bears watching. I'm not sure where they're going with her yet, but some of the things she does are either odd or shady. First, she's uh, the one covering up Husk's body. I wonder if any, if, uh, I wonder, it, I'm sorry, if anyone was not going to care about the deaths, it's Mystique. There's also the scene right before she dies. When Cyclops tries to contact her, she doesn't respond right away. What was she doing? And you know, Mystique really hasn't gotten all that much play. As I thought she would in this uh, post-Hox-Pox Doc's world. Um, I figured, especially with her reasoning for joining the Quiet Council, that we'd be getting a little bit more from her, uh, even this early on. Though, I mean, when you get to the end of Hox-Pox, there will be some... There'll be some discussion about Mystique and some of the things that Mystique wants, you know? And I suppose maybe due to her ties with Destiny... Uh, Mystique might be like a story trigger that's going to be pulled closer to, I don't know, whatever the next reboot's going to be after Dawn of X. Um, because I think that could send shockwaves through Krakoa, and uh, that might even bring us to an endgame for this, uh, for this you know, blip in history. So, so Mystique, definitely one to watch for, definitely. Uh, Al wraps up with, finally, that speech Mother Mold gives about the Titans. I think she was comparing the mutants to the Titans of myth, humans to the Olympian gods, and sentinels to humans. The humans stole fire from the gods and eventually didn't need them anymore. Kind of fits with what we're seeing in the future. They don't need the humans anymore. And yeah, that's that's 100% it. That is uh, definitely what it was they were going for. 
it was just a little bit too flowery for me. Um, in the reading there, it felt it felt kind of like it insisted upon itself. It wanted to sound a little bit more um, a little bit more poignant and flowery than I, I felt maybe it needed to. Uh, I don't know that whole you know baffle them with BS sort of thing is is how I kind of took it. But no, no, your your explanation makes perfect perfect sense. So uh, thank you so much for writing in. Thank you so much for uh, sticking around and. Uh, I think that's uh, where we'll put a pin in it for today. Uh, thank you all for uh, listening. And if uh, you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find the show notes at Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com. We got XLaps.Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. We got 90s X Men on Facebook. We got the Tumble page on Tumble. <laughs> it's a, I think it's X hyphen lapsed. You might be able to find it. I, I just, uh, you know, I typed. TU in my browser and it brings it up so I don't think that'll work for everybody though so uh, you might have to actually search for Xlaps but uh, if you use the tumble machine you'll you'll yeah, you'll find it I guess I don't know <laughs> the complete audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com a lot of noise there for your ears and uh, hopefully some of it will be enjoyable for you um, I don't usually ask but uh, hey if you know anybody who's in who's X curious here uh let them know this show's out there. Maybe they'll maybe they'll dig it, or maybe they'll uh, want to throw a brick through your window for subjecting them to me. But uh, <laughs> if you're digging the show and if you wanted to spread the word, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. But uh, I think that's where we'll end it for today. Uh, just one more giant thank you to everyone for uh, sharing your time and sharing your ears with me. It really means the world. So uh, till next time when we talk X-Force number four, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 34 of X-Lapsed. It is a uh, most deadly episode uh, we're going to find out as we work our way through this issue of X-Force. Today, it's X-Force Volume 6, Number 4. Had a February 2020 cover date. 
The story is called Blood Economics, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Josh, Josh, Joshua Kassari. Easy for me to say. Colors, Dean White and Guru EFX. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Our edits are Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now, we start with a fairly unpleasant-looking cover. Um... It kind of looks like something you might see on either volume of X-Men Unlimited. Really doesn't match anything that's going on in the books right now. It just feels very... I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> now we open up, perhaps to our largest ever roll call page yet. Let's see if we can get through these names here. With uh, I doubt I'll be able to do it in one breath, so we'll just take our time. Wolverine, Kid Omega, Domino, Professor X, Marvel Girl, Beast, Sage, The Black King, Sebastian Shaw, Storm, Apocalypse, still not listed as A.E., Mr. Sinister, Mystique, Magneto, Exodus, Nightcrawler, and Forge. Yowza. Okay, double page spread of creds, and then in we go. Now we open at an Xavier Pharmaceuticals, that's like pharmaceuticals but with an X in the middle of it, a distribution site off the eastern seaboard uh, kind of looks like a bubble on stilts because it's, you know, kind of in the water. We see some, I'm assuming, lowly Xeno grunts bobbing in the surf below. They climb up and, uh, well, they kill them, they, they, they start killing some guards, they start taking out guards, uh, and the guards are comprised of multiple man dupes. Now, while all this is going on, we're reading some narration from Professor Xavier, and he's, he's busy talking about how happy he is that they were attacked back in X-Force number one because uh, now their strengths have been reinforced or something. I don't know. I guess maybe, maybe we're looking on the bright side of a... Uh, we're trying to make the best of a bad situation. I don't know. Now, this takes us to a meeting of the Quiet Council, and it looks like the gang's all here minus the Red Queen. Xavier then interjects this weird bit of conversation. He starts discussing Hercules and his Twelve Labors. Uh, but first, he fills us in on some lesser-known Herc history, which uh, kind of makes me think Ben Percy just learned a lot of this stuff himself and was in a big rush to share it, because, uh... Ugh, howdy, this feels, this feels rather shoehorned. Um, you ever see that episode of Friends where Joey buys, like, one volume of the encyclopedia, and so he spends, like, the rest of the episode trying to steer any and all discussion to the subjects that start with, like, the letter V. Like, he wants to talk about Vesuvius and vacuums and stuff because he had he only bought the V volume of the encyclopedia and he wanted to sound smart. This kind of feels like that. Um, anyway, the gist of it is, Hercules was strong but stupid. He needed his sister Athena to bail him out time and again. From here, we join Beast, Marvel Girl, and Old Lady Jubilee as they check in on that Pharmax DC. And, uh... Okay, Sage really looks like an older Jubilee here. They have basically the same outfit. Bright yellow jacket, gaudy pink shades. I gotta figure I'm not the only one to have seen this page and wonder when Jubilee had the time to grow her hair out, right? I mean, this is... It's very, very, uh... Very similar. Uh, anywho. Gene telepathically projects what one of the surviving Jamie dupes saw, and, uh... Well, it's pretty hard to, to see exactly what we're supposed to be seeing here. Um, all I can tell you is it looks violent, but uh, really doesn't tell us much of the story. I think we might all assume that uh, an event that left a bunch of dupes dead was violent, so this is kind of redundant. 
Uh, it's worth noting here that Hank does note that the, the attackers used a different caliber of gun than the Wetworks team did when they took out Xavier. Not sure this proves anything, or perhaps maybe that's just a tidbit for us readers who already have an idea that Zeno is comprised of, like, bits and pieces of several different disparate secret agencies. Or maybe they're a different group altogether. I mean, it's just masked, masked dudes here, so it's really, really difficult to think all that hard about it. Um, Jean, she thinks out loud about how difficult it was for Jaime to reabsorb the surviving dupe. Jaime... Man, it's a good thing we got three editors on this book, isn't it? Hmm. From here, Beast and Sage waste most of a page arguing about how the attackers arrived at this distribution center. Tessa is now under the assumption that these baddies were aiming at uh, Krakoan finances and data, which I suppose stands to reason. From here, we get an info page that lists all of the Xavier Shell Corporations. We've got Xavier Pharmaceuticals, we got Gifted Mind Technologies, Uncanny Valley Farms, Summers News and Media, Evolution Energy, X Mark Spot Mining, Cerebral Films, Phoenix Law Offices, Salem Center Auctions and Real Estate, Blackbird Motors, Wolverine Waste Management, oh god, uh, His Dream Philanthropic Foundation. Uh, they really got, uh, they really got try hard toward the end there, didn't they? Um, also, Xavier created the digital currency known as Xcoin. How five years ago? Huh. Okay. Back to the Quiet Council. Sebastian Shore wonders why they're all, you know, all on edge right now. He says, you know, after all, Xavier was killed, and now he's back. Also, Xavier's been robbed, but now he's a billionaire. He doesn't seem to understand the stakes here, and uh, here I am agreeing with him. And you all just wait till the very end of this issue, because, uh, oof. Oh boy. From here, we get some very rehearsed-sounding dialogue from many of the council members. Sassy Sinister seems to be the only one with his head on straight. He suggests that they, you know, just take out their attackers. Gene says no way, and then projects a scarily posed assortment of their new foes. I mean, you gotta see this panel here. It's You have, like, a row of these masked guys here, in, in like, in formation, and, like, the boss, you know, the big court of owls-looking guy, he's, like, behind them, looming over them like a giant, you know, like he's, like, posed for this picture. It looks like something that should be a comic book cover and not something that Jean Grey should be projecting telepathically because it looks like, uh... It doesn't look like anything you would actually see in real life. It's, uh, really... I don't know. I probably shouldn't be thinking about it. Oh, it's also worth noting that Doug Ramsey is present for this meeting, so, uh... I guess the New Mutants make it back okay from Shi'ar space? Spoiler alert? I don't know. Uh, Exodus asks what they might do about this, you know, this group here, Zeno. Xavier suggests, hey, we'll use X-Force. Then, the conversation shifts to suggesting that X-Force is something akin to, like, a Krakoan CIA. And, uh, hey, that's a, another safe target for our heroes and writers to pass off commentary about in it. We had Big Pharma last episode, Big Corporations, and now the CIA today. So we're really taking down some... <laughs> Big-time sacred cows here, huh? Uh, Mystique especially has a problem with this idea, but Jean tries to bring it all back around to Xavier's earlier lecture on Hercules and Athena. It's uh, it's a uh, observation I've made before when we've read X-Force. Uh, it feels like they're writing these in reverse. You know, you, get, you have that point you want to make, but you have to get there. So I think we really wanted to get to this point, and so we had to dial back five or six pages to get this weird... 
pointless and out of nowhere Hercules Athena thing. From here, we follow Wolverine, Quentin Quire, and Domino down to the armory to meet up with Forge. And Forge is being written like kind of like that black market weaponier uh, who, like, he can get you weapons on the DL if you're in a buddy cop movie. You know, he's like that kind of eccentric guy who has, like, really bad jokes because when they show up here, he tells them if they're looking for stuffed animals, they're in the wrong place. Really, Forge? Come on. From here, he and Wolverine also have this, like, weird, playful, contentious relationship thing going on. It feels so dumb. They arm wrestle, like, in midair. Out of nowhere, they just arm wrestle. They, like, do a little test of strength. Wolverine pops his claws. They both laugh. It's ridiculous. Uh, once this foreplay, and that's Forge's words, not mine, is over, Forge shows off his new organic weaponry. It's kind of uh, made of the flesh of Krakoa. It's organic, plant, bio, whatever. And uh, this organic weaponry can be a blaster, a blade, it could be pretty much anything you want. Um, he refers to it as a Swiss Army mitten. And while it's really, really gross, it's a pretty cool idea. I like it a lot. Um, now, before our heroes leave, Wolverine notices a big old tub of molten adamantium. Forge says it's there for the times they have to put Wolverine back together, you know, vis-a-vis a resurrection. Wolverine asks if Forge might be able to make him something with it, but doesn't get the chance to elaborate. And uh, one dollar American says it's a sword. I'm, I'm betting it's a sword, because that's what we get in these books. From here, an info page. And it's a page out of Forge's day planner. And, uh, you know, uh, the comedian's at the mound, and he throws the joke. Swing and a miss. Not funny, not even cute. From here, we shift over to the point, where Beast and Tessa have deduced that the baddies will next target an Xavier facility outside of San Francisco. And this one also looks like a gross bubble, just not on stilts, because it's not in the middle of the water. Uh, sure as sugar, the masked men bust in and attack. Beasts note that the people in this place are human associates of Xavier, and so, if they die, it's a one-way trip. And I wonder, has Xavier ever tried to back up a non-mutant? If not, why not? If he's working with and entrusting, you know, some humans to run his, his interests and his labs and his research, wouldn't it stand to reason that he'd try to back them up? I don't know, maybe we'll get a, a, a full explanation on that sort of thing later, reasons why he can't, who knows. Now, let's hop to San Francisco, and these masked goons are laying waste to the facility. They're shooting the ever-loving hell out of the scientists and engineers. And so Wolverine, Domino, and Kid Omega rush toward the Krakoan gateway that will deliver them there. But the bad guys have attached some explosives to the other end of it. Now, here's the thing, and this is our go-home. Wolverine and Kid Omega are in the process of passing through the gateway when the whole thing goes boom. So... Out the other end, all that made it through was the top half of Wolverine and Quentin Quire's head. Domino was a step behind, so she just winds up not teleporting at all. And we're out of here. Next stop, Fallen Angels. Okay. Okay. Seriously? We have four issues of X-Force under our belt here. And two of them end with major character deaths? I mean, I get that, you know, ch I get changing the stakes. That's been like a huge, major theme of many of our discussions up to this point on X-Lapsed. But four issues in, and it already feels like we're in self-parody mode here, because this feels like a joke. 
This is like something out of like Punisher or Deadpool or insert extreme character here destroys the Marvel Universe levels of bad comedy. Is, is this really what we're in for with this book? Are, are we just looking to think of new and creative ways to kill every single character, knowing that they're going to be right back on the front lines an issue or two later? This, I, I hated this ending. Um, we're just killing the concept of the cliffhanger by instilling this feeling that nothing really matters. You know, I, I, and we're talking about shifting the stakes here, but this, we have Wolverine cut in half. Um, we already saw the pool of adamantium. We know that he can be rebuilt. We, we've seen, we've seen Wolverine rebuilt before. Um, this just feels pointless. Um, it feels like a way to extend a story that doesn't need to be extended because this is going to lead to more parts. Yeah. Okay, let, let's let's leave that where it's at, and we'll just move on from here. All right, plenty more forced Percy dialogue here. Uh, lots of points being made at the expense of sounding like, you know, actual humans speaking. I mean, we're getting pages and pages of dialogue that clearly no one ever bothered to actually say out loud. Otherwise, they would just have to know how stilted and forced it sounded. Uh, this is getting to, you know, fans of DC Comics might, or current year DC Comics, might know a fellow by the name of Steve Orlando. His dialogue is all sorts of inorganic. Um, feels very, very forced. Feels very unhuman. Um, it's like Siri speak. You know, it's not something a human being would ever say. It's just uh, exposition as dialogue, and it doesn't work. Now, our threat being like just a mass cabal of geeks. I guess this is just a situation we run into when all of our best villains suddenly side with the heroes. We get like nameless, faceless, pointless bad guys. I mean, I've joked that this feels sort of like a Wildstorm comic, and I mean, it really, really does. Uh, we've had our Wetworks crew, we've got a group of suited, masked bad guys to worry about. I mean, what, what is this? Divine Right? DV8? Stormwatch? Come on, this is just so. Ugh. I, I, like, all we need to happen now is for the leader, this Court of Owls guy from Xeno, like, removing his mask to reveal, like, waist-length, shockingly white hair and a scar over one of his eyes. And it's like, okay, we've gone full Wildstorm. And I will continue not to give a crap. Uh, Forge. Um, I don't think I've ever seen him written quite so dopely. Uh, he and Wolverine playing, like, that old bros routine. I'll say it with me, it felt extremely forced. I mean, they've got, like, pet names for one another, like, he's calling them Wolverine, like, Short Stack? Uh, they're, they're playfully arm-wrestling for no reason. Like, what is this, like, two varsity football players at the high school reunion? Eh, not, not, not good. I will say, though, Forge's Krakoan Swiss Army Mitten, really cool idea. Though, I mean, with something like that, what more of a point does Forge himself serve? If this mitt can do and be anything, why the hell do we still need Forge? Did he just, like, work himself out of a job? I've been in that position before, and it's not fun. Uh, the Tub of Adamantium. That begs a few questions. First of all, why haven't they laced every Resurrectee's bows with bones with the stuff? I mean, if they've got it, and lots of it, why not? Why can't Cyclops have, a, have an Adamantium skeleton? It's not like they're affecting his... You know, his biology, it's still the Cyclops' body. I mean, Wolverine's body wasn't born with adamantium. They're adding that after the fact. So, 
why not just give it to everybody when they're bringing them back? Just a way to make them sturdier. Um, I do appreciate that we do get some clarification on how a resurrected Logan will still have his inorganic adamantium-laced bones. But I feel like it begs more question than it answers. Um, and also, uh, he's totally asking Forge to, uh, you know, well, forge a so- an adamantium sword, right? I mean, that's got to be where we're headed with this. We, we're getting swords like every third issue, so I, it's almost got to be. Uh, let's talk about the yacht. Uh, it felt a bit scratchier than usual. Uh, I mean, considering this is usually a darker book, but this time it was a little like it was like Scratch City. Uh, some pages felt like we were looking at inked and colored sketches or pencil roughs. Really not the best look. Uh, overall, I'd say this is kind of a dud. I am completely over Dead Mutants, and I am losing interest in the direction of this book. I want to be optimistic. I want to like this. There's a lot of characters in this book I like. But this ain't doing it. This ain't doing it for me. Um, this is uh, very samey. Uh, we talked about, you know, the the curse of part four of six. And, I mean, this isn't exactly that because we are getting some things happening here. But it's just the same things. You know, it's... We got to deal with more mutant deaths now. And... I'm over it. <laughs> I'm over it. But uh, that's pretty much all I got to say about X-Force number four. But before we go, we do have a couple of pieces of mail to look at here. Now, we'll start with Damien. This is talking about Marauders number four. Damien says, first off, I have to thank you for linking to my stuff. And this is regarding uh, his Millennium posts and his Millennium episode. Uh, he continues, I'm always keen to get more eyes and ears on my stuff. Of course, you also linked your Millennium stuff, so I'll now read loads more behind-the-scenes information. You really have managed to gather together a lot of resources. I'm very jealous. And uh, thank you, but uh, never never be jealous of obsessive compulsivity. <laughs> I'm a sick man. Um, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sick fellow when it comes to putting together a lot of stuff. Uh, now, I'm always looking for ways to share folks' work. Um, I only wish my voice carried a little bit further so I could be more of a help in that regard. And, uh, you know, there was a time where it did carry a little bit further, but just not so much anymore. I'm I'm trying, though. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I think everybody's just tired of me. Um, and I'm also, like, notoriously bad at promoting my own work, so anytime I see, like, a semi-organic opportunity, I do try and take it. I miss far more than I hit, unfortunately. But, um, but if you did take a look at that Millennium stuff, I really appreciate it. Uh, that's a, uh, that's one of my, you know, like I said, an evergreen post. It's something that I'm constantly updating whenever I find more information to, uh, to stick in there. So thank you for that. Uh, Damien continues, you're right that hearing people's origin stories is fascinating. We've already established that coming into the X-Men at different points really affects how we view the characters and what we're willing to accept in the stories. One of the best things about comics podcasting is that it's autobiography. Even the most basic index shows reveals how we consume comics. It's amazing that thousands of people all over the world read these issues, and we all get something different from them. And yes, it's 100% true. Uh, Comics podcasting is autobiography, and it might, you know, for fans of comics and people who grew up with comics, it might be autobiography at its best, you know, considering the subject matter. Now, during my personal, you know, podcasting endeavor... 
I've learned so much about the different eras where folks have entered the fandom, you know, learned about what stuck out to them, learned about what made them stay. Um, and it's, it's wildly interesting because different people came in at different times as it stands to reason. And some people chose to stay for reasons that other people may have chose to leave. It's, it's a lot of fun to discuss those sort of things because I think you get to look at things from a different angle and a different perspective and, uh, and maybe you get a get a better or deeper appreciation for things you may not have uh, given a second thought to. Um, during an earlier episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths, I revealed some of my um, some of my personal X Men origin story, and it turned out that a guy that I've been talking to for years now, a fella named Jody Yurden, he's part of the From Claremont to Claremont uh, group. He uh, he discusses uh, X Men Volume Two with me there. A good pal of mine. I didn't know that he and I had the very, very same first X book. You know, we we both picked up X Men Volume Two, Number Thirteen, <laughs> to enter into the fandom. And I mean, talk about a random issue to start with. It, it's just wild when you just learning about uh, about how everybody uh, got their start and uh, and our trajectories through the fandom. And and you know, thinking about that. That same story with uh, with me and Jody picking up the same book. It's like I'm thinking, you know, two little dudes in the comic shop, maybe on the same day, buying the same first X book. It's it's pretty cool to think about. But for you know, for me personally, this outlet is uh, is like a way for me to sort of keep an audio diary. Um, you know, back to Chris's on Infinite Earths. That's a more personal show. You know, I'll talk about. My life and times outside of comics That'll tangentially relate to comics, you know And I'll do that for, I mean, sometimes over an hour Well over an hour before actually moving into comics content uh, You know, there's, there's just so many things I think I think as a fandom, we, uh, we do stuff where Like, the way I usually put it is Comics have, you know, they've got, they've got cover dates, right? So we can... Almost at a glance, be able to tell where we were when we bought a certain thing, you know. And you could think about, you know, for me personally, it's like I can I can remember reading certain books and remember what was bubbling on the stove, you know, or remember what was on the TV in the background, or remember what 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 song was playing on the radio while I'm reading a, a, a certain book. It's it's very fun to uh, to go back to those thoughts and to. Kind of relive those memories and associate the reading of a comic or the experiencing of a comic with something going on in real life. Um, you know, I've told stories about, you know, falling in love with comics but being so scared that I was going to miss out because I didn't have the money to, uh, to, to afford everything I wanted. So taking odd jobs in the neighborhood and, and, you know, mowing lawns and cleaning out apartments and just doing anything I could just so I could get my comics and... So I've told stories like that. I've told stories where, you know, how, how uh, you know, a comic book. <laughs> I've I've told weird stories about having to lose weight, and uh, and and how that associated with comics. And there's a lot of a lot of personal stuff on that. Chris's on Infinite Earths, uh, you know, top, uh, feed. I guess it's all the same feed, but playlist maybe. I don't know. And it's very cathartic. Uh, though, as I said before, it kind of feels like a mental and emotional shiatsu massage. Um, and also, one thing I never thought of as I was telling all these personal stories is that, 
it kind of puts me at something of a disadvantage when I meet people, you know, or like folks who I may collaborate with who have listened to these episodes and, uh, like, we'll have our first voice-to-voice conversation or our first, you know, instant message chat on, on Twitter or something. And even though it's, like, our first time sort of meeting, they already know so much about me. So, like, they're able to reference points in my life, and I'm like, whoa, this is weird. Because I can't do the same. Which isn't something I ever thought about before, you know, being... I don't want to say confronted with it, but before experiencing it. And that's... uh I don't know, it's, it's equal parts uh, really cool, and also, it just goes to show that, you know, um, <laughs> per- things that are personal aren't, aren't so much when you when you share them <laughs> in public, but uh, no, it's it's really cool. I love the, the concept of podcast as autobiography. It's, uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, it's my favorite part of the thing, I think. Uh, but back to Damien here. I'm really looking forward to you getting more fans on to talk about their ex-origins. And yes, I agree, me too. I, I'd love to get more people on to talk about their their lives and times as ex-fans. And uh, and also, you know, pick their brain about this, you know, pox pox docs run. Uh, that's uh, because it is so wildly different from what came before it. It's I think we're going to run into some um, some differing opinions on on how comfortable we are with this new direction. I've already heard from some folks who said they hate it, and uh, which I think puts them in the in the minority in in as far as being vocal about it. Uh, I don't know how evenly split liking or disliking House of X, Power of X, Dawn of X is, but I have heard from a few people who said, you know, it's not for them, and uh, I'd love to pick their brains and find out find out why because. Maybe I'll get a deeper appreciation for some things, or maybe there's things that I, even though I, I chew on the scenery and I get lost in symbolism that isn't even there, maybe I missed out on something personally, you know. But uh, yes, I'm definitely looking forward to chatting up more people and uh, finding out what makes them tick as X-Fans. Uh, back to Damien, he says, On to Marauders. I love this book so much. The best thing is the pacing. We're never on part two or six, uh, two of six. Rather, every issue advances the overall plot, but it's also a complete story. It was great to return to the Zhao plot, but for it to be a beat within a larger story. In many ways, it says something damning about modern comics that I'm impressed by a storyline getting the number of pages it needs. You're also right to notice how right the dialogue feels. Kitty and Bishop are furthering the plot while remaining in character. And, and yes, it's true. Uh, this, felt, this felt like a throwback in a good way. And I, and I think I mentioned this uh, during Marauders number one when we discussed it uh, back a few weeks ago. I mean, this uh, Zhao subplot was something that was, you know, left to bubble a little bit. You know, it was established in issue one. It got a mention in issue two, skipped issue three, and here it is paid off in issue four. It's uh, I, I guess a way to look at it, or a way I would look at it, is like it's kind of an accelerated Claremont subplot, you know, like a payoff of a Claremont story. But uh, you know, so much better than what we're usually getting this side of the year 2000 insofar as decompression and uh, being, kind of being um, condescended to in that we can only handle one story at a time. You know, I feel like with eyes on the bookstore market, um, Marvel and DC are looking for a different sort of readership that is... Uh, 
while it has many similarities with uh, the serial readers, the month-to-month, uh, you know, single-issue readers, they're also very different in that they buy something at a bookstore, they get a complete story, and that's all they really need, you know. So it's a uh, it's refreshing to see this. Um, also refreshing, Kitty and Bishop's relationship. Uh, surprisingly good, given that I really can't remember them ever really pairing off before. Um, and I'm sure they have a time or two. I know they were both on the Claremont Extreme team um, in the early 2000s, uh, but this just felt new, it felt novel, and like you said, it felt just plain right. Um, back to Damien, he says, I also love the detail that Bishop becomes Kitty's Red Bishop, at least partly to keep an eye on Hellfire. It makes sense for them to be suspicious of both Emma and Shaw. And yes, it makes total sense. Total sense. And it opens us up to plenty more story opportunities. I mean, here, we get to keep Bishop in character, right? Because he's been saying, you know, no thank you, I don't want to do this. He's been against it. And to, to just have him come around to the idea of joining would have felt wrong. But he's doing it because there is an ulterior motive here. It keeps him in character. It keeps him sticking to his guns, but realizing that... Uh, you know, that there is a bigger prize out there in in his being in the circle, you know? I mean, we have questions like, what happens if and when Hellfire finds out that Kitty's Red Bishop is feeding information back to Beast and the X-Men, right? Will Bishop ever wind up getting in over his head here? Will he ever be put in a situation where he might have to, like, actually sell Kitty out? Uh, a lot of fun paths that this can take, and... uh I'm definitely looking forward to, to following along and seeing where this goes. It's I don't know that I've enjoyed the Bishop character quite as much as this in, in a very long time. And uh, I think him as the as the straight man to Kitty kind of being wild and crazy might be a, might be a fun fun little uh, diversion for us. But thank you so much for writing in Damien. Uh, always appreciate it. Always look forward to it. Uh, next, we have a tweet by our friend Jason C. And this is regarding um, Excalibur number four, where I said that I got a little bit confused, or a lot of bit confused, about, uh, you know, I, I don't know even know if I'm allowed to say these things in a, as an American. Uh, you know, what what is England? What is Great Britain? What is the UK? I don't know what any of them means. So he sent me a helpful, helpful in quotes, uh, Venn diagram <laughs> to <laughs> help clear it up. Um, and boy, it is, uh, it's clear as mud. Um, I, (laughs) I'm looking at it right now and it's got a big circle that says British Isles, right? Then we have another circle within it that has British Islands and that includes Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, the Isle of Man, Guernsey, and Jersey. And, uh, it also includes the subheadings of... United Kingdom and Great Britain. Inside the United Kingdom bubble is Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, right? Um, <laughs> Ireland has, it, it crosses over and like Northern Ireland is like the only thing that connects into into all three. It's, it's so bizarre. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what any of it means. <laughs> I'm, you know, I can be very dense. Um, but yeah, I don't know what's what here. Um, we will have, we're gonna have a mention of uh, of the UK, England, Great Britain, um, 
you know, brain kerfuffle that I have here in a later missive from Damien that we'll cover in a couple of episodes that I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, having some fun with. But, uh, yes, yeah, so thank you, Jason. <laughs> um, me, Richter, and Jubilee are all just as confused. But uh, last but not least, we have a message from Ed Moore. And this is about New Mutants number four. And this is answering a question I had and another just... Something that should have been obvious. I mentioned uh, that I couldn't figure out what DOX, DOCS, stood for when we were talking about the magazine or the website that uh, that revealed that, you know, Beak and Angel and the Bohusk mutant children are hanging out in Pilger, Nebraska. And, you know, of course, DOX can stand for Dawn of X, but DOX also is a, uh, a common thing on the internet now that I can't believe I forgot about. Ed sent us the definition here, docs, to search for and publish private or identifying information about a particular individual on the internet, typically with malicious intent. So doxing, I can't believe I forgot that. Um, <laughs> I feel like an idiot because I mean, in you know, this, you know, this day and age, that's something we've heard of. That's something that we hear about people being doxed and, uh, and that's exactly what they did to the Bohusks, you know? They they revealed that they were there in Pilger and, and got the cartels on their case. So, very interesting. I can't believe I didn't realize it. I can't believe I, uh, I overthought it, is the thing. And that's something I do a lot. I was looking for a deeper meaning when, hey, you know, doxing is doxing. So, it's it's right there and plain in front of my face. So, <laughs> thank you uh, for, uh, for including that, Ed. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, you're going to be hearing more of Ed's voice on this here channel uh, coming up uh, as we kick off the new fall season. So that uh, that's something to look forward to. But uh, thanks, everyone, for writing in. Thanks, everyone, for uh, for hanging out. If you need to, like I said it again, if you want to get a hold of me, because nobody ever needs to get a hold of me, if you want to get a hold of me, you could do so at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and stuff at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. We've got xlapse.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You got uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook. Got the Tumble page. You got all that stuff. You got the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And uh, I think that's where we'll leave it today. So uh, one last huge thank you to everyone for uh, sharing your time and sharing your ears. It really means a lot to this cynical soul. Um, it does, it does my soul good. So thank you. Thank you all. And until next time, when we discuss everybody's favorite fallen angels, number four, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 35 of X-Lapsed. And uh, I've made the joke a time or two about how uh, this might be the shortest episode on record. But, uh, oof, it is, um, well, it's Fallen Angels Day. And I am having a heck of a time trying to think of a single thing to say about the book we're about to discuss. <laughs> there is, uh, oh, this is, a. Uh, the very definition of a part four of six. This is just a another nothing happening issue in a nothing happening series. Um, I suppose I, I could tell you the story about how I got my uh, my first ever COVID test this morning. I got swabbed, uh, but that you know I, I guess that that might be a little bit more interesting than this. Uh, I drove in and they swabbed my nose and I left, and that that might be more interesting than reading this book. But. Uh, Let's get right into it here. Uh, this is Fallen Angels, Volume 2, Number 4. Had a cover date of February 2020. The story is called Shikat- Shikatsu, written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Kadransky. Colors Frank D'Armada, letters VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman, edits Robinson White Sabolsky. Cover price $3.99, went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now we open in Flashback Land. Uh, this is the uh, Japan area of Flashback Land, where young Quanan is looking on while someone close to her, well, I'm assuming they were close to her, dies of poisoning. Now she's with an adult who tells her that the dying man let his guard down due to believing that the meeting he attended with others was uh, in peace. You see, uh, peace isn't to be trusted because uh, that's where the death hides. And I say, uh, we might want to run and grab our umbrella, but this time we ain't dodging fallen shoes, we're, we're dodging anvils. We hop to the present, and Quanan and X-23 are staking out a trio of apothefected children. Now, worth noting, they've got white eyes instead of black, though I'm not sure that means a damn thing here. I don't know. Uh, Laura reminds Quanan that this whole shebang is all about her. So, Apoth, Overclock, all of it. It's all about Quanan, which I believe makes this the fourth issue in a row where we're finding this news out. Laura also tells Psylocke that she shouldn't be trusting any of her visions because anyone can see that she's being led somewhere. Then, they talk about, like, trust for about a page and a half, and it's all very hackneyed. X-23 asks if maybe Betsy Braddock might be of, exi- of assistance here, considering that she, you know, lived inside Quanon's body for a while. Uh, though, I mean, considering the Marvel sliding timeline, Betsy's inhabitants of Quanon's body might have been just like for a long weekend at this point. Who knows? Uh, Quanon does not appreciate the suggestion and tells Laura to never, ever, ever bring up Braddock's name again. Next, Laura, who really seems to want to make conversation with this boring lunatic, says she's worried about Cable. She gets the old, you know, Cable's a big boy, he can handle himself reply. Then, two pages of credits, and our roll call, and it's, uh, it's just our same three characters, Psylocke, X-23, and Cable. 
Speaking of Cable, we rejoin him wherever the hell he is, and he's still strapped to an apparatus of some sort. You know, he's spread eagle, like, stuck to something. <laughs> it's, it's basically how we see Cable now. He looks to be screaming, unless the wall behind him has some of the lousiest graffiti on it I've ever seen. He's addressed by that spawn-looking character wearing a, you know, a black hefty bag, uh, that who we got to look at at the end of last issue. And uh, the old hefty phantom here talks about how the mutants checked out on the world, which might allow for the rest of the world to begin to evolve. Haven't we heard that somewhere before? I don't think it was an issue of this book, but... Uh, it might have been, but I know we heard this somewhere, where somebody had mentioned how when the mutants left, the rest of the world had an opportunity to evolve. It may have been this book. I, I just... I don't remember. I just know this isn't the first time we're hearing such a suggestion. Uh, the Hefty Bag Phantom then in injects Cable with something? I, I think he was injecting him. The art is doing a really poor job of conveying what we're supposed to be seeing. Though in fairness, the script isn't being all that helpful either. Now, this injection, or whatever, is intended to be delivered to Psylocke. And we get some spoo about her losing a child, but the hefty phantom says she has another kid out there, but this one isn't made of flesh and bones, this one is made of zeros and ones. It's, duh, a path. Now, Psylocke is called the Mother of God, and we find out that God only wants her love. And, uh... I don't even think I need a spoon to gag on after a line like that. Uh, we hop back to the stakeout. Psylocke grows bored of just waiting for these white-eyed kids to do something. Uh, yeah, tell me about it. And so she shouts out to them. They reply, causing X-23 to extinct instinctively go snicked. Psylocke, you know, calls her rough, tells her to calm down. One of the white-eyed children starts talking and, well, duh, it's the voice of a path, just like they did in the barn, what was it? 13 or 14 issues ago? Ugh. Uh, they play a little bit of Let's Make a Deal here. Now, in exchange for Psylocke simply listening to what he has to say, these three white-eyed children will be spared. Oh, and also Cable won't be killed either. Um, you remember when Cable was like this big, tough, like gruff dude who like nobody would screw with? Yeah, me either. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with this kid Cable. Uh, Psylocke extends her hand and touches the middle white-eyed kid. Here come the visions, and, uh, oof. If this was hard to follow before, maybe I'm just dense, but it gets even more so here. Psylocke flashes back to an earlier assassination mission she was sent on by an old woman. I think. The art here does uh, this bit of story absolutely zero favors. Though, again, in fairness, I couldn't imagine what the script Kadransky even received here looked like, you know? Um, the gist, as I understand it, and I could be completely wrong, is that Quanan was put up to kill this this being, you know, this thing that would go on to become Apoth. And uh, when confronted from behind a closed door, Apoth used a child's voice to beg for its life. And so, uh, Psylocke, Revanche, Quanan, whoever she is, she spared him. And then over the years that followed, Apoth, quote, grew in the dark. After spending a couple of picoseconds reading the Bible, Apoth came to the realization that he was a god. Quote, Lucifer in defiance of the fire. Quote, the voice that guided Noah. Quote, I am the flood. Hill's ninth grade creative writing teacher would be so proud. 
So, Apoth suggests that Quanon's love saved him, and so she is his mother, just as God wants. Another thing this God wants is Cable, the perfect union of man and machine. Apoth wants to evolve the world, I guess, in Cable's image? He suggests that this union will give the world a perfect peace. Apoth then releases Quanon from her projections, and as promised, spares the white-eyed children. Psylocke slumps to the ground, but is then haunted by sounds, sounds that only she can hear. She then looks up and sees something, which is something only she can see. Wow, didn't we already do this in the other Betsy book? With the druids and stuff? I don't know. (laughs) What she sees here is a glowing humanoid bald man. And uh, I'm not sure if it's supposed to look like Professor X, or maybe I'm just like profiling all bald men in X-Men books as being Xavier-like. That's our cliffhanger. Um... But we wrap up with a couple of info pages which transcribe a phone interview with someone named S. Nakamoto. And they're talking about artificial intelligence, and it's uh, wildly boring. Uh, At least it was the only info page bit in the issue. But, uh, yeah, that was Fallen Angels number four. Next, we will wrap up the Dawn of X number fours with X-Men. X-Men usually leads the charge, but this time it's going to anchor the line. So... Yeah, let's, uh, I'd say let's talk about this, but like I alluded to earlier, I'm, uh, I'm running out of things to say about this book. Uh, I think I said it last time, uh, that we discussed Fallen Angels, but X-Lapsed is a free show. You know, nobody pays anything to listen to this show, but when it comes to discussing this book, I still feel like I'm ripping you all off. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm robbing you of precious time. Uh, this is just another, just a nothing happening title, another nothing happening issue, and a nothing happening title. And uh, to be honest, if I hadn't already spent like a couple hours mocking up the X-lapsed album art for the next dozen or so episodes, I'd be tempted just to push through Fallen Angels over the course of the next couple of episodes, you know, just so we never, ever, ever have to discuss it ever again. But. I've already got all of them numbered, and it was a pain in the butt putting the pieces together, so we'll have to wait. Um, What is there to possibly say about this issue? Other than the fact that uh, I didn't like it, which I guess is something, not a whole heck of a lot. Um, We're really just going through the motions here. We're getting very little in the way of new information. I'm really starting to think that this entire series could have probably been fit into a regular-sized one-shot. And by regular size, I mean like 18 to 20 story pages in total. Th- there ain't there ain't jack going on in this book. Um, this is being executed extremely poorly. Uh, the pacing is ridiculous, and the payoffs are non-existent. I can't believe we still have two more issues of this to cover. You know, I can usually say a thing or two positive about the art when it comes to Fallen Angels, but... With this issue, I feel like the storytelling was kind of all over the place. It was hard to tell what was what, uh, especially when it came to that scene where Quanan and Apoth, you know, share a mind for that uh, assassination attempt flashback. I mean, if you look at these pages, are we looking at Quanan the whole time? In certain panels, she's got long hair, in others it looks short. The costume silhouette changed a bit, too. Is this just supposed to be a little bit nebulous, or is it, are we looking at another person altogether? And these are questions I'd ask if I give a crap, but I can't say that I do, um, because it doesn't matter. 
I'm hoping, like really, really hoping that there's an upswing in quality of these Dawn of X books. And I mean like soon, <laughs> like today, tomorrow, <laughs> yesterday. I mean, outside of Marauders and that new mutant story we haven't been allowed to read for the past few issues, there is precious little to get excited for here. Um, fingers crossed that business picks up and picks up soon because, yeah, this is rough. This is a slog. Um, when you have a line that's six books deep and four and a half of them are kind of average to middling to, in my opinion, just pretty bad, that's, uh, that's not good. <laughs> that, that doesn't make for a good reading experience. It doesn't make for a good uh, me talking about it experience because, uh, I know the internet is a cynical place, and I know that, you know, the angry reviewer is kind of a thing that has existed for, you know, 15, 20 years now, where you just you just talk a lot of spoo about, uh, about things and, and try to be as uh, negative and reactionary as possible, but I don't want to be that guy. I really don't want to be that guy. I want to be excited for these books. I'm yearning for the, uh, the days of Hoxpox now, where... I was excited for every single day. I was excited for every single issue, every single episode. There was just so much that we were learning. Um, I think uh, Jason put it best. He said that Hickman had set us up for the extraordinary, and uh, Dawn of X does not deliver on that very, very much at all. And I feel like we are uh, we're muddling. You know, we're muddling between events, and we're just waiting for... As I'm sure, with the amount of sword imagery we've seen here, this is all building to, uh, to you know, X of tens. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, we are, we're just, uh, you know, we're just paddling here. We're just trying to keep afloat, and we're treading water, and not a whole heck of a lot's happening uh, that's noteworthy or that is building on any sort of foundation. Um... Yeah, we we need we need improvement and we need improvement. Yesterday, uh, I'm gonna vamp for a bit here and uh, flip through the old short box here to see what we have next here in this issue of X Men. And okay, I see Professor X, Magneto, and Apocalypse all wearing suits on the cover. So maybe we're not gonna get the old ladies again, which is a good thing. So <laughs> I don't know what'll happen with the old ladies, and I can't say as though I care. So hopefully. Next episode, we talk about something a little bit more interesting than the old ladies who steal plants and uh, fallen angels. But before we get to that, let's do a little bit of dipping into the mailbag here. There's going to be a short one here. Just one message from Damien. And this time he's talking about Excalibur number four. And he says, this is definitely the issue where Excalibur started to lose me. I think I commented before, but I strongly believe that Americans should not be allowed to write comics set in the UK. And uh, it is uh, funny that uh, you say that, because this is the first issue of Excalibur, as as an American, that I enjoyed. Because uh, it didn't take place in another world, and I don't understand enough about the UK, as we're going to get to in a moment, to where I, you know, I don't know what's what. (laughs) I'm not very worldly. I probably couldn't tell you about a lot of stuff that goes on in my own country, let alone others. But uh, I just appreciated it because we got to 
we got to see some of these characters. We got to, you know, be sort of reintroduced to some of these characters who were just kind of serving the purpose of, you know, stirring the other world pot rather than actually being, you know, three-dimensional characters. So I, I, I liked it on the, uh, by that regard here. Um, but like I said during the, the episode where we discussed Excalibur number four, can't say that I'm looking forward to what's to come because it feels like we're going right back to Otherworld. So I guess this was the calm before the storm. Uh, back to Damien, he says, As you say, an explosion near Buckingham Palace would definitely involve a police response. My, my experience is that you can't get within a mile of the palace without passing many go- gun-toting police. And don't forget, armed police are un- unusual in the UK. So yeah, that, that scene did feel very, very strange here. We've got Gambit charging and exploding a bottle. And it's right outside the palace gates. Like, literally, you can... Like, Gambit could have thrown it over the gate. You know, that's how close he was to, uh, to the palace itself. And all it did was, like, foment this riot between protesters and the mutants. Didn't see any police interjection. Didn't pu- didn't see any anybody getting pepper sprayed. Nobody pulled any weapons. It was just a little brawl that uh, went away when Betsy came out of the uh, out of the palace, and she's like, "Okay, we're good to go now. You guys are officially Excalibur. Let's go." Uh, back to Damien, he says, "Not that it matters, as the Queen's role is largely ceremonial." Really, Betsy should have been at 10 Downing Street or liaising, liaising with the security services. Honestly, it's not far off me writing a story where Captain America finds out that there's a threat to the USA and sending him to tell a bald eagle. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, I wondered that too, because I know that, you know, the I mean, isn't the Queen like 300 years old right now? I, I don't know that she can really be all that effective in governing. Um, and... As, you know, an uneducated American, I just see the whole royal family as a lot of, uh, as you said here, ceremonialism. It's just, these are just figure roles to, I guess royalty is just so ingrained in the culture. And this is me not knowing anything about anything, but it seems like that might be the thing where it's like royalty is so, so loomed so large in the history of the culture there that uh, that they just keep it going out of tradition or or out of ceremony. So yeah, it's uh, it was weird that Betsy went there. I wonder if Teeny Howard knows that, <laughs> or if or if you know maybe she realizes that she's writing a comic that a lot of you know ignorant Americans are going to read and. We don't know the difference between any of this stuff, you know? So it's like, oh, you know, Chris in Arizona is going to see that uh, they talk to the queen and he's going to think, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Sounds right to me. Um, Now Damien wraps up with, uh, talking of which, I could try to explain the difference between the different names for my country, but we have deliberately kept it confusing and are legally prevented from letting Americans know the truth. I'm allowed to tell you that I live in England and Great Britain and the UK and Europe, but I don't think that helps. Anywho, anyway, Toodle Pip and Cheerio, and no, that doesn't help. <laughs> but I do understand the rules, and I, and I and I and I respect them. I respect the laws of your country, and uh, not being able to to tell me what's what. Uh, it's uh, funny. Um, Reggie and I did an episode of Weird Comics History way back in the day, probably early 2016, where. Uh, it was a short little segment that we did on another program, and 
what we were covering that episode was uh, this was a DC Comics uh, themed show, so we were talking about little weird little bits of history in DC, and we talked about you know the so-called British invasion of the uh, mid to late eighties. So you had folks like uh, you know uh, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, um, Peter Milligan, Grant Morrison. You had all these uh, these Western European writers come in, and I think we even said that uh, that Morrison was from the UK, even though he's from Scotland. So I think in our show notes there, I have the the mea culpa on that. But uh, I remember we I think we said I think we said England sometimes, Great Britain sometimes, and UK other times. Realizing that at least one of those has to be right. One of the times we said it, so we we tried to cover our bases because Reggie was a uh, was a wildly worldly fellow and uh, and a brilliant individual. And uh, when I asked him what the difference was, he couldn't explain it to me. And uh, when he couldn't explain it to me, that was like, okay, well, then I, I feel a lot less dumb not knowing if Reggie doesn't know. But uh, but yes, I, I appreciate the uh, the laws of uh, of your of your island nation, and uh, <laughs> and I will not pressure you to uh, to let me into the club. So. I do have Irish ancestry. Uh, you know, Sheehan is my, my you know, my uh, last name. So, yeah, I got a little bit Irish there, but uh, I understand. I understand. But uh, thank you so much for reaching out. And uh, I, I definitely appreciate your um, your point of view on this story, you know, taking place in in either England, the UK, or Great, and or Great Britain. Because... Uh, I think you're offering this uh, very fascinating, to me, um, perspective, where, like I said earlier here, if Betsy says she talked to the Queen, I'm like, cool, okay, everything everything makes sense. But uh, maybe, you know, living over there would be like, well, she probably should have talked to someone else. And that makes sense. So that that's really cool. So thank you so much for reaching out. And, uh, uh, you know, before we go into... Uh, the end game here. I do want to apologize for how negative this episode probably sounded. Um, I kind of feel like we're getting a lot of issues in a row where the the quality just isn't there. Um, the past three episodes we had we had an X Force issue that really put the forced in X Force. Uh, we had a New Mutants issue which was also <laughs> less than great, and here we have uh, Fallen Angels. So it's we're not our our batting average is is not uh, not great at the moment. So, like I said earlier, hopefully this comes back around. Um, I am ignorant to what's to come. You know, I don't know if there's anything any notable stories on the way. I don't know if there are any big story beats on the way. Um, I do remember getting some mail saying that you know certain issues of certain books had you know pivotal uh, you know post. Uh, Hox Pox revelations and kind of built on that foundation. So there will be some stuff. I just, I don't remember which issues they were off the top of my head, but I'm looking forward to seeing some stuff, <laughs> especially because, yeah, these haven't been a, these haven't been a fun few episodes for me here. Um, kind of a, kind of a slog. And, uh, eh, fingers crossed we'll hope for the best, right? So, uh, <laughs> If you'd like to reach out and tell me what a horrible curmudgeon I am and how horribly negative I am about these brilliant books, uh, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. 
You can find all the show notes and the stuffs at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. I recently covered another oddity over there. I covered the Obnoxio the Clown versus the X-Men one-shot from 1983, which introduced us to a mutant character called I-Scream, like E-Y-E hyphen Scream. Uh, It's his only appearance, and uh, his mutant power is that he could change himself into any flavor of ice cream he so desires. And I thought that was fascinating because 1983, there were probably a handful of mutants, you know, a, couple, a few dozen at most. And one of them was Ice Cream. And uh, we covered that other 1983 book with Equus. And uh, yeah, we had only, I mean, we probably had less than 50 mutants, and two of them were Equus and Ice Cream. I just thought that was kind of cool. So I covered that, the Obnoxio one-shot, and also the uh, Uncanny X-Men at the State Fair of Texas uh, one-shots. So uh, those are there at chrisoninfiniteearths.com for folks who want to see some weird comics. Uh, you can also check out the X-Lapsed sub-page at xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. Find us on the Tumble at the Tumble. Um, also, the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. A lot of stuff cooking there, so uh, there'll be there'll be a cup, at least a few new programs starting up over the course of the next uh, next handful of weeks. Just uh, lining up some lining up with uh, some co-hosts and uh, trying to trying to actually sit down, sit still for long enough to to mock up a schedule, which is something that I have a big problem with. But uh, <laughs> I think that's where we'll leave it. Um, it is worth noting that with this issue of Fallen Angels, we finish our third of four uh, reading order checklists that appear in the back of the House House of X, Powers of X, Dawn of X books. So this is, my, this is how I'm kind of navigating my way through here. I'm going strictly down this line. We have one more, uh, one more list... Uh, that has, I think, 11 books on it. But after that, Marvel stopped including a list, a reading order list, in the back of the House of X, Powers of X, Dawn of X era of books. So we're going to be kind of flying by the seat of our pants at that point. Uh, unfortunately, the internet has conflicting and contradictory reading orders, and I'm trying to keep it as uh, as genuine to the release dates as possible here. My only issue will be like... If, say, on a particular day we had an issue of Marauders, Excalibur, and X-Force all come out, I just don't know which order those would be read in. So if anybody has any kind of interest in helping me out with that, let me know. And Because uh, I have a list of everything that's come out, and, uh, and if, you, if anybody wants to help me put those in order, that's fantastic. Um, we also have a couple of miniseries coming up. we got X-Men Fantastic Four, and we have the Empire uh, colon X-Men books. Don't know if we should do those all in a shot, like do four days in a row of those just to get them out of the way, or if we should just do them as they come out. Uh, So if anybody has any thoughts on that, please let me know, because uh, your wish is my command, because I haven't the foggiest idea what I'm doing. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it. One last huge thank you, and sorry for how negative this episode was. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for uh, sharing your time and your your audio apparati with me. And uh, till next time, when we discuss X-Men number four, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 36 of X Laps, where we're going to be wrapping up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 4s. And we do so with, uh, well, the book that usually starts the charge. It's actually uh, the anchor book of the number 4s, and that is X Men Volume 5, number 4. This had a March 2020 cover date. The story is called Global Economics, written by the head of X himself, Jonathan Hickman, pencils by Lionel Francis Yu, inks by Jerry Allen Gillen and Lionel Yu, colors Sonny Go, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White-Sabolsky, had a cover price of $3.99, and Happy New Year, this one went on sale January 1st, 2020. Now we open with our roll call, and it's a fairly short one. We've got Cyclops, Magneto, Charles Xavier, Apocalypse, and Gorgon. And we open in uh, Davos, Switzerland, or maybe Davos, Switzerland. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. I'm not a worldly guy. I don't know how to pronounce things. (laughs) I don't know how to pronounce things in my own country, much less anywhere else. Uh, This is Switzerland, though, and uh, this is a meeting of the World Economic Forum. So now, since Krakoa is, you know, now a thing, and is now acknowledged by many as being an actual nation or world power, several members of its government have been invited to the table. And uh, these are the autumn seats of the Quiet Council, which, if you missed the roll call 15 seconds ago, would be uh, Professor X, Magneto, and A. They're accompanied by two of the great captains of Krakoa, and, well, yeah, it's Cyclops and Gorgon. Hey, then we get our credits, so I guess we're going for, like, the cinematic presentation for this one here. We get the little before, and then we get the credits, and then we go into the comic. So, let's get back into the comic. And, uh, the Krakoan contingent has entered whatever building this meeting of the minds is taking place at, and they're, uh, met with a semi-warm reception. Now, the autumn seats are granted access to the meeting room, while the captains are advised they're gonna have to stay outside. Cyclops is pretty cool with this, but uh, Gorgon gets kind of gets in the face of one of the uh, the dudes here, you know, threatening to use his sword. And so, we follow Xavier and, and company into the meeting room, where they find themselves seated at a table with dignitaries from Wakanda, China, and the United States, as well as several VIPs from Brazil, Italy, Switzerland, and India. Huh, an ambassador from the United States. I wonder who's going to be the bad guy here. Hmm... Anyway, from here we get a full full info page on 
to list all these folks here, as well as to give us the menu for the meal that they'll share during this meeting, because I'm sure we all wanted to know that they'd be eating watermelon gazpacho. <sighs> Anywho, after introductions are made, our diners all toast to peace. Worth noting, Magneto is referred to here as Eric. Is he back to being Eric Lenscher? Uh, last I read X-Men, they had like this bug up their butt about calling him Max Eisenhot. I don't know if that's still a thing or not. It's also worth noting that Apocalypse introduces himself as Apocalypse, stating that uh, humans are unfit to refer to him by anything else, and I think I prove that every time I call him A. We flash to the floor above, where a gaggle of geeks is preparing to attack. They're wearing like these sort of like baubles on their heads to interfere with uh, Xavier's mind readability. But that doesn't stop the professor from, you know, sussing them out to begin with. He knows they're there, he just doesn't know what they're thinking. Now, while the pleasantries continue to be exchanged, Xavier contacts Cyclops telepathically to inform he and Gorgon about the pressing threat. Xavier tells them to, quote, be good boys and take care of the bad guys, which, I, I don't know, that doesn't feel like a, how a natural conversation between Scott and Charles might go. Calling them, be good boys, I mean, saying be good boys, that's a little cute, but let's get back to it. The meal has been served here, and Magneto is speaking with some dignitaries about this new normal, the, you know, the new normal that is Krakoa, and how everyone needs to adapt and accept it. Hodari, the Wakandan attaché, suggests that Krakoa is working in their own best interests, but he adds that that's just what countries and nations do, so it's some sort of national common ground here. Everybody's out for themselves, trying to, you know, look out for their, their own best interests. Now, Magneto uses this, you know, polite opening to try and sway Wakanda into signing their treaty, to which Hodari smiles, but politely declines. The Indian representative questions Krakoa uh, closing off its borders to the rest of the world, and wonders if that's, you know, the best play here, when, you know, when a new nation is trying to establish itself and to be trusted within the global marketplace and power structure. From here, our douchebag U.S. ambassador puts it a little bit more bluntly, while tugging on his left ear very obviously. He basically calls the mutants out as being cowards, which perks Apocalypse to raise an eyebrow. Uh, or, hey, I don't know if I'm allowed to call him that here, since I am human. Um, he asks if, he, uh, if it truly feels as though the mutants are in hiding on Krakoa, but the subject will you know, soon change. But first, let's look at this for a second. We've got yet another very safe target in these Dawn of X books. Over the past few episodes, we've had, you know, screeds against big pharma, big corporations, the CIA, and now a U.S. ambassador. I mean, when we started this, I referred to the writing as, uh, at the risk of swiping a DC Comics property, I, I, I referred to it as being brave and bold. These targets they've chosen are anything but... Now, Magneto steers the conversation back to the reason they're here, and, duh, Kirko and Miracle Drugs. One of the ambassadors doesn't completely trust these drugs, and wonders about, like, the frequency in which they'll have to be taken, you know? Perhaps fearing that, uh, you know, once they start taking them, they're going to be, like, in service to the mutants forever, you know? So they won't be able to stop, and they'll just be, be dependent on them. From here, Magneto quotes Huxley, which is, I don't know, I think it's supposed to be deep, clever, I don't know. All the while this is going on, Cyclops is blasting the hell out of some of the bad guys on that other floor. One of the dignitaries kind of laughs that Magneto had to quote a human author since, you know, there really aren't that many notable mutant writers. Magneto says, hey, don't worry about it, there will be. 
The U.S. ambassador douchebag continues tugging on his left ear, rather obviously. I wonder what that's all about. Uh, Magneto continues kind of tearing into human institutions. Uh, He comments that every thousand or so years, humans kind of ruin everything and have to start over from scratch. He cites the end of the Bronze Age as an example. U.S. Ambassador Riley gives the big ol' who cares, to which Apocalypse comments that he does, since, you know, he was there when the Bronze Age fell, and what more, he was the cause of it. Oh, and while this is going on, Cyclops is still fighting dudes. Another dignitary comments that she fears this sort of posturing from the mutants can only lead to war. Magneto corrects her. He says, you know, maybe the old Magneto would do something to trigger a conflict, but... This is a new, an all-new and all-different Magneto, and he would not do that. This time out, they're prepared to have uh, maybe a non-violent sort of war. Magneto lays it out here. With their drugs, they're going to take everybody's money. With that money, they're going to buy everything, including banks, schools, the media, politicians, and then just the world. Uh, They'll remove people they deem as unfit from having any economic power, which will ultimately snuff them out. And so, ipso facto, uh, without bad ideas and bad people, there will be no war. And uh, the rest of the table is justifiably gobsmacked here. They're just like, "Uh uh-huh. Now, Cyclops reports back to Xavier that he and Gorgon have taken care of the threat. And this takes us to an info page, which reintroduces us to the Krakoan captains. And uh, we'll go through them here. Why not? Cyclops is the captain commander of the X-Men. Magic is the captain of the Sextant. Bishop is the captain of Hellfire Trading, and Gorgon is captain and council guard, meaning that Gorgon is responsible to guard all the members of the Quiet Council. Speaking of Gorgon, we get a page of him. We join him, and he's amid a pile of bloody bodies. Looks like he spares one of them. I I, I don't know that he... (laughs) I thought they weren't supposed to kill people, but it sure looks like there's a lot of dead bodies here. But uh, he spares one of them, and he suggests that the bad guy... Maybe embrace his mercy, you know? <laughs> Don't look a gift horse in the mouth here. You were spared for, you know, for my, you know, good mood, I guess. Back at the table, Magneto notices that Riley keeps tugging on his ear, which, I mean, it's been very, very unsubtle this whole time, right? Uh, that is to say, the dude might as well have been wearing a neon sign, right? Uh, Magneto advises Riley that they are not coming. He then fills in the rest of the table about the bad guys Riley planted on the other floor. Riley starts to get all panicky and starts throwing around accusations, and uh, honestly, with as blustery and blowhardy this character is, I'm surprised he wasn't drawn as being fat and sweaty. I think that's usually the go-to for the go-to art shorthand for this kind of a character. Anywho, amid his blustering, he questions how long this piece the mutants speak of might persevere. Xavier calmly responds with one month. He informs the table that Riley sent that Wetworks team to Krakoa to kill him, which flashes us back to the final page of X-Force number one. Riley flat out denies the charge. Magneto doesn't buy it, but informs the table that Krakoa has a law prohibiting them to respond in kind. You know, that kill no man uh, precedent. Xavier removes his Cerebro helmet and he goes on to give a speech. He says he still loves the humans, and despite everything, he'll never stop believing them in them. With a smirk, he again accuses Riley of sending the killers to Krakoa and suggests that he had similar designs today with his cadre of uh, easily disposed of geeks. Riley looks to his peers, trying to get them to see reason. You know, the mutants want to take over the world, and uh, humanity is just expected to simply let them? Xavier puts his helmet back on and assures the table that the next time something like this happens, it won't end the same way. 
Magneto thanks the table for being such good teachers, showing them everything not to do in creating and growing a nation. Our Krakoan contingent leaves the meeting, with Magneto suggesting nobody ever attempt to try them again, because if and when they do, they damn sure gonna get a response. And that is where we leave X-Men number four. And uh, next up, we have Marauders number five, which uh, I'm, I'm rather looking forward to. But first, let's talk about this issue. Now, if you remember from last episode, if uh, for the handful of people that actually listened to Fallen Angels Day, because <laughs> the numbers on, on Fallen Angels Day is a little, a little rough. <laughs> and, you know, I totally understand why. It's, uh, it's not a great book. <laughs> And if anybody wants to listen to you know thirty plus minutes of me complaining about a bad book, yeah, I don't think that's a that's something people want to do. But when we discussed the horrendously dull Fallen Angels number four, I commented that if we're going to continue this project and see it through, these books are going to have to improve and fast. So here's the question: Was X Men number four an upswing in quality? Undoubtedly, though. It's not exactly a high bar to clear, is it? Another question, was it fun to read? I don't know. I really can't say that it was a blast. Um, I mean, this is a book and an era that abuses the info page format, right? I complained, or I've observed, that we have a lot of info pages. And here we get an entire issue that might have been better summed up in just a handful of text pages. I mean, we get some info here, we get some accusations, we get Magneto carrying himself with, uh, with a swell amount of swagger, but still, I can't say as though I had a whole lot of fun with it. Now, something about this issue that I've been sort of commenting on in other discussions is how these Dawn of X books are taking on really safe targets. Like, we weren't going to have Magneto butt heads with the Wakandan attaché here, right? It had to be the stupid American. And I'm not a jingoist by any definition of the word, but to use the American as the mustache-twirling bad guy, it feels kind of like lazy, low-hanging fruit type of writing, you know? This is the sort of writing that's not going to offend anybody except the people you want for it to offend, you know? Does that make any sense? You know, personally, I'm not offended by the content, but perhaps more, more so by, like, the intent and just the laziness of the effort. I mean, this isn't deep writing. This is... This is strawmanning, and it's, uh, it's lazy. Um, now, speaking of potentially low-effort writing, Magneto says that they're going to remove certain people from power, and I'm already kind of cringing at the thought of this uh, potential parade of strawmen that we're about to see trotted out. I mean, a current-year Marvel book calling out and canceling people? Yeah, we're going to need an adamantium-laced umbrella to save us from those anvils. Now, Magneto... You know, warts and all here, he had some pretty good lines. Um, and it's strange that he was given, you know, the pulpit more so than Xavier. Xavier really didn't do a whole heck of a lot, but make a sort of forced-sounding speech at the end, wherein he accused Riley of sending the Wetworks geeks to Krakoa. We don't actually get any confirmation of that. Are we to assume that Riley's lying? Are we to assume that Riley's part of the Xeno Collective? Um... On that subject here, was Riley one of the ambassadors that Magneto gave that tour to all the way back in House of X number one? I, I want to say he was. I couldn't say for sure, but I do remember um, the an American delegate or an American ambassador uh, being made to look quite the fool, and I think he tried to pull a gun on a guy who 
has the power of magnetism, so there's that. Uh, the Cyclops and Gorgon intercuts were there. Not sure we needed so many of them. Though in fairness, by the end of the issue, it clearly feels as though Magneto and the gang were running out of uh, clever things to say and clever points to make, so any expenditure of panels away from the table of power was probably a good thing. Uh, the art felt uh, a little weaker than usual. Uh, Lionel, you seems like he's trying to morph into like a Gary Frankel-like here, uh, and he's doing so with limited success. A few of the faces we see here almost seem blatantly swiped from a Gary Frank work, while others just sort of look blobby and without features. It's a mixed bag. Though, uh, for at least part of this issue, uh, Lionel inked his own pencils, so maybe that has something to do with the inconsistency here. I, I'm not a much of a, uh, enough of an art expert to uh, say one way or another. Overall, though, how did I feel about this issue? I liked it, but I didn't love it. Um, it's better than the last issue of X-Men we looked at, and uh, World's better than the books we discussed over the previous three episodes, but still kind of weak for what I what I thought was going to be like the flagship book of this line, you know, the straw that stirred the drink. I expected more, but, you know, hey, that might just be my problem. Maybe I'm... <laughs> I shouldn't get mad at something for not being what I want it to be, and uh, maybe I'm just going into this book in particular with uh, expectations a little bit too high. But, you know, liked it, didn't love it, don't know what to expect next issue. Um, I don't know if we'll go back to the old biddies again, or if we're going to be onto something else altogether. So we'll see, uh, you know, a handful of episodes down the line where that goes. But uh, since we did just wrap up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 4s, let's rank them. Let's rank them here. And uh, it's getting harder and harder to rank these things because uh, the quality is uh, kind of uh, all over the place. Um Number one book of the of the of the month here, or of the number fours, is uh, is Marauders. Of course, Marauders was the strongest book this time out, followed surprisingly, uh, you know, for me by Excalibur. I think the Excalibur books have always been in teetering around the fourth and fifth of the list, and here it is at number two for me. Uh, this issue, X Men number four, would come in in the number three spot. Followed by New Mutants, then X-Force, and then finally, Fallen Angels. So, Marauders, Excalibur, X-Men, New Mutants, X-Force, Fallen Angels are my rankings. I look forward to hearing uh, some of your rankings to see uh, where you place these books. I don't know, I, I feel like maybe this X-Men, my take on this X-Men issue may differ from some folks's, because uh, I've heard some good things about this run, um, though without any kind of specificity. So um, we'll see. We'll see how uh, how folks uh, agree or disagree. I, I, I encourage anyone to reach out. But uh, speaking of reaching out, we do have some uh, mail to attend to here. And uh, we're going to start with Damien. And he's talking about New Mutants number four. And he says, I've been reading... This is all regarding uh, Boom Boom's characterization in New Mutants number four, which I uh, took issue with. And uh, we're going to see here that Damien agrees. So he says, I've been reading Boom Boom stories right from the start. I picked up the Marvel UK reprint of Secret Wars 2, number 5, way back in 1986. It always sticks in my mind as they reprinted it with an amazing Carrie Gamble cover from Marvel Age Annual number 1. I transferred to Marvel US by the time she made her second appearance in X-Factor, and I picked up every single appearance of her until I had to cut back on comics when I went to university in 1992. This means she's one of the characters who I know their early history really well. 
This means I find this issue of New Mutants infuriating. And uh, Damien is about to raise a point that I had totally forgotten about. He says, In her ver- very earliest stories, it is established that her father is a drunk who beat her. This is why she runs away from home. It's why she's angry and rebellious. I do not believe that Boom Boom would get drunk enough to fall flat on her face more than once in her life. In fact, I imagine her refusing to join the party because she's expected to be there. Bingo. I totally, it totally slipped my mind that she'd run away from home because of the abuse she received at the hands of her drunken father. You'd have to assume that uh, with that being this, you know, huge turning point in her life, she'd it would stand to be to reason she'd be a lot less likely to imbibe to the point where she can't even stand on her own two feet, much less. And I mean, every scene we see her in here, she's carrying a damn bottle of whiskey with her. Every time we see her, no matter where she is, where she goes, she's carrying a bottle. Unless, of course, we're headed toward an intervention story, which I joked about during one of the New Mutants issues we talked about, as saying that is not a story I care to ever read because. No, I don't need that in my life. Damien continues, I know why she's so out of character. It's all down to Next Wave. Even Jemis and Casada, who could be incredibly lax with continuity, were wise enough to say Next Wave was out of continuity. I still do, I still do not understand how it was decided to recreate Boom Boom as a Paris Hilton stand-in. I can't think of a less appropriate character beat. Who's equating a scrappy streetwise runaway with a spoilt heiress? Nonsense. And you know... I remember feeling, you know, back in the mid, mid-aughts, mid I think we called them, uh, I remember feeling like sort of a man on an island for not really caring about caring for Next Wave. Um, it wasn't because of Boom Boom or anything. I just thought the concept was a little too, you know, LOL random. At a time before, LOL random was like the, the language of comedy on the internet. <laughs> I just, it really, it really annoyed me. I thought it was pretty to look at, but it really annoyed me. Uh, Damien continues. Of course, the decision to bring Next Wave into continuity was made a few years ago in the Avengers books, and I'm sure is an influence on this Boom Boom. I just wish it wasn't. And now, this whole continuity wrinkle is news to me because I never assumed that it wasn't in continuity. Um, You know, the Quesada era of Marvel was, as you put it, lax with continuity, and I think that might be putting it kindly. I'd suggest that Joe Q was more of a... At the risk of coming across crass, um, a star effer, I think that's what we would say, who would let pretty much anybody stomp all over the Marvel pantheon of characters if it meant he'd get a call from USA Today or be tagged in a Joss Whedon or Kevin Smith tweet. He would do whatever it took. Uh, With that said, I assume Warren Ellis was just given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted with whatever characters he wanted until, as it usually goes with Warren, he gets tired of them and moves on. Usually vowing never to write superhero comics again until six months later when we start the cycle all over again. Uh, Damien continues, My feelings about Boom Boom really colored my reaction to the whole book, but there were some good points. As you said, it's interesting to see a drug cartel wanting to control the Krakoan drugs. They lay on the drug dealers slash big pharma comparisons a bit too heavily, but it's a different approach. I was also pleased to see the link back to the Hoxpox info pages about countries who wouldn't trade officially with Krakoa. Knowing that things are planned gives me more confidence in the direction of Dawn of X. And totally, the uh, cartel angle was interesting and creative. Uh, though, as you, as you say here, the big farmer bits were laid on a little thick. I've got like a real... It's probably wildly apparent here, but I got a pet peeve about writers using low-hanging fruit. Um, I mean, I said it today when we were talking about X-Men number four. It's just so low, low effort, and it looks like you're saying something. You know, taking a position... 
when you're really just not. Um, it's like, what's next? Maybe next time out, Marvel Girl and Storm will visit like a Walmart-like store and find something to complain about. Or maybe Strong Guy will visit a McDonald's-like fast food place and find something to complain about. I mean, if you're going to come across as self-righteous, at least be a little bold. Stop picking the easy targets. You know, give us, the readers, a reason to think critically. And maybe maybe don't waste our time so much parroting late-night talk show hosts with the, with the easy targets here. Uh, Damien continues. You're absolutely right that the twins are creepy. I didn't know that they were pre-existing characters. It seems like none of the other people in the story are familiar with them. I wonder if they'll become villains. Uh, they seem to be to enjoy escalating the violence between the kidnappers, and uh, I did check the wiki on them, and I guess they were used as hounds for Ahab during the extermination miniseries, which I still haven't gotten around to reading, but it is sitting on the shelf waiting for me. Um, it looks like they were also part of whatever the hell Age of X-Man was as well. Um, I'm guessing it was probably a different version of them, because from what little I know of Age of X-Man, X- Age of X-Man... It was sort of like another universe, another dimension, right? Uh, Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) All I know is when I look at the covers of those, I kind of cringe a little bit. Uh, Damien continues. It seems a really odd choice to return to the Shi'ar next issue when I seem to remember this story being a three-parter. Weird. And yeah, it's it's kind of all over the place, isn't it? Um, If this is a three-parter, if you're remembering right, why not just bang them all out in a row? Um, I will say, though, it now makes a little bit more sense why some of the Dawn of X reading order lists I've been trying to, trying to, like, decode and figure out, they list the New Mutants issues, like, out of order, you know, so, uh, now I see why. And I gotta wonder if maybe these two issues coming out in one month was just giving Jonathan Hickman a break, helping him stay afloat with his X-books and his other obligations, because otherwise this makes zero sense at all. Um, it really, I mean, the, how jarring it was going from the Shi'ar to the farm, and now we're going back from the farm to the Shi'ar, and we're just going to go back from the Shi'ar to the farm again after that. It's, it's very disjointed. Now, uh, uh, Damien wraps up his message with, uh, by the way, I really enjoyed your coverage of the Texas book, and this is Uncanny X-Men at the State Fair of Texas. It's always nice to see a bit of undiscovered Carrie Gamble art. You did throw me with your mention of Equus, who I heard is Ekus. I, I think that's Ekus, which was the play where Harry Potter showed everyone his wand. And I've never, I've never seen Harry Potter. I've never. Uh, I don't know if I've made it clear on this show. I, I don't ever really see movies. Um, I can't sit still long enough to watch movies, so I don't see them. And uh, yeah, I, I've never seen a Harry Potter, so I don't know how he. E-Q-U-U-S is pronounced. <laughs> then again, I don't know how E-Q-U-E-S is pronounced either. I just took a shot at it. But uh, thank you so much for checking it out. Uh, that piece was a long time coming. I actually wanted to cover it on the blog ever since I found it, like a year and a half ago. But uh, back then when I did find it, uh, Chris's on Infinite Earths was a strictly DC Comics only blog. I kind of imposed rules on myself, and they were unflinchingly rigid. And, and they only mattered to me, but I'm a pretty weird dude, so I, I adhered to them. Now, after some life-altering events earlier this year occurred, I stopped caring so much about the rules and decided to just write about whatever the hell I felt like writing. And uh, I also allowed myself to include things like podcasts on chrisoninfiniteearth.com, which was uh, previously sort of like a church and state, you know, don't cross the stream sort of thing for me in my head. You know, sort of like blog posts go here, podcasts go there, and never the two shall meet. 
Um, like I said, though, life-altering events happened, and I kind of got over myself and my rules. Now, the state fair issue was a lot of fun. I really love sharing things that, uh, you know, you don't see shared a dozen times a day on your social media platform of choice. Because, honestly, there's, like, only so many times you can see someone share Spider-Man cradling Gwen Stacy's dead body before you just get tired of it. Though, in fairness, every time that is shared, which is, I think, every 12 seconds, it does get hundreds of bits of engagement. So maybe I should just start doing that. Uh, It's sad as it might sound, I kind of pride myself on trying to give folks who bother to follow me something new and novel to look at rather than the cheap heat. (laughs) You know, I do what I can. But uh, thank you so much for the message, Damien. Uh, Next, we have a message from Ed Moore, and this is regarding the reading order per post the Dawn of X number sixes that I talked about last episode here, because we only get a list in the back of these books that go up to issue six, and then it's the Wild West. <laughs> it's I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, Ed says, as I asked about um, the miniseries, we have uh, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, and we also have Empire colon X-Men coming up And I asked how to do those You know, how would would we do those here And Ed says, I would do Empire as an episode And X-Men FF as an episode The only downside is that it would be longer Than your normal X-Labs shows And here's kind of what I'm thinking I like the idea of doing these these mini-series All in a row Like without six or seven episodes Between each installment What I might do is say have, you know, episodes of X-Men Fantastic Four all in a row, right? So we'll do, on if, if, if Monday is the day we do one, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we'll do two, three, and four, knock them all out. So all four episodes dedicated to the miniseries. My question from here is where would something like that fit? You know, do I do all four around the time the first issue would have hit the stands? Or do I do all four when the last issue would have hit the stands? I'm... Maybe I'll just include the list of X-Book releases from February 2020 until now on the blog and see if we can't all put our heads together and plot a course here. Um, I think the ship has already kind of sailed as it pertains to covering these issues in like a legit chronological order. Since we are getting flashbacks and flash-forwards as we're being released here, I mean, in Fallen Angels number one, it looks like Betsy's first mission to Captain, as Captain Britain was already done. You know, I mean, hell, Fallen Angels probably should have been done all in one episode because uh, it still would have been a short one. Uh, we saw that Cypher was already back from Shi'ar Space in X-Force number four. We've got the weird New Mutants jumping from story to story. A lot of out-of-order stuff, right? So maybe when, like, all said and done in, like, I don't know, Dusk of X or Sunset of X or whatever they're going to wrap this era up with happens, maybe then I'll put together, like, a chronological playlist of how these episodes ought to go. But, uh... We've hopefully got months and months and months and months and months before we have to worry about that, though. Again, this is Marvel. So, I mean, I could check uh, Bleeding Cool right now and find out that, uh, hey, you know, Dawn of X is done. But uh, we'll see. But thank you for the uh, for the uh, suggestion there, Ed. And we will uh, we'll see how it goes. We will see how it goes. Uh, finally, we have a tweet from uh, Sean Ross from Pulp to Pixel and Secret Wars and Beyond. He's also uh, the Alpha Flight co-host for From Claremont to Claremont. And he's discussing, uh, uh, what is it, Fallen Angels number four. He says, I really like the creative team, but man, this was a rough read. And yes, it was. (laughs) And like I've said uh, in previous episodes here, I've heard good things 
about Brian Hill's work uh, over at DC, but I haven't read any of it. I have heard good things about Batman and the Outsiders. Um, and si- uh, Simon Kudransky, I enjoy him on Spawn. So, I mean, uh, that seems like a recipe for something good, right? Some good creators, and uh, th- yeah, this is a rough one. <laughs> this is a rough one. And, you know, the fact that these re- these creators are held in somewhat of a regard makes it makes me question whether or not I should like express an opinion because uh, I find so much of what we encounter online is uh, I don't know I, I feel like I feel like the uh, there's a currency on on giving giving better reviews than books sometimes deserve because it uh, legitimizes us because we'll get a retweet from a creator or something or we'll get a uh, we'll get an attaboy from a creator and that's why I kind of second guess a lot of reviews I see online where we're giving books 10 out of 10 scores which they say 10 out of 10 isn't perfect but to me 10 out of 10 is as high as you can go that means you can't get any better <laughs> so I always get a little nervous when I when I express my honest opinion about a book because I, I don't want to one of the things I say is that uh, I don't think any writer wakes up in the morning and says I'm going to write a bad comic book today and uh, I don't think Brian Hill did that. I don't think he woke up and said, I'm going to write a really boring Quanon story today. And yet here we are. Um, yeah, it's a toughie. It's a toughie to get through. Uh, thankfully, we've only got two more to go. But uh, thank you so much for reaching out, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for uh, reaching out. If, uh, if anybody would like to get a hold of me, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find stuffs at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com and xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. On Facebook at 90sXmen. On Tumblr at x-lapsed something or another. Uh, one of these days I'm going to have to actually figure out what that address is so I can... Stop sounding like an idiot when I promote it half-heartedly. Um, the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Lots of good stuff there, lots of fun stuff, and lots more stuff to come there. So uh, one more giant thank you to everyone for reaching out and uh, and listening and lending me your ears. It uh, really means a lot to me. Next time we will be discussing Marauders, and uh, my hopes are high. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll uh, we'll see that when we get there. But uh, another huge thank you, and uh, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Yo